TBS. The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV shops and reviews, along with news and opinions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who please going to have a very happy Valentine's Day, my co-host. Hey, everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, Once Upon a Time returns from hiatus as Andy joins Dan to discuss the episode, and we're going to discuss Castle, Modern Family, Supernatural, Community, The Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest. Also, as expected, we're going to wrap this episode up with our Airwaves Rundown section, featuring our thoughts on Justified, Arrow, Bones, How I Met Your Mother, Glee, and Andy joins me once again for the following. But there's still much more. Yeah, and part of that more, because everyone's favorite section, News with Nico. The CW renews Supernatural and Arrow. The network may have been the last to get its 2012-2013 season started, but it's the first to get its 2013-2014 season started, having just ordered a ninth season of Supernatural and a second season of Arrow to debut next fall. The CW is actually building on something here, people. Arrow has become the network's most watched show with 4.3 million viewers, though it didn't elaborate on that number. We're guessing it includes DVR numbers and maybe some online streaming numbers. Right. Arrow's success has been a boon for Supernatural, which has seen its numbers tick up 15%. Now, that fact might be that Season 7 was pretty bad and aired on Fridays, and you know it, all those sort of things kind of contributed to the Season 8 bump with it being much better this year as well. Yeah. But the fates of the rest of the CW series are up in the air, but it's obvious that the network is going with its strategy, which is to stick with what's been working. Its 2013-2014 development slate is heavy on young adult genre projects with all but two out of the eight pilots in contention having either supernatural, fantasy, or science fiction bends to them. Let's hope they make better choices this year than in the past few years. Although their newest one, Cult, that premieres next week is pretty good. I saw the pilot early and stars one of my favorites from Supernatural, Miss Alana Tall. Good news all around for CW this week as it looks like they have possibly another hit in Cult and these two renewals, early renewals, are good news. Well, and finally they get their heads on straight. Yeah. They realize that the supernatural stuff, because really what's working, what made, you know, what was the WB pretty strong. So exactly. I'm glad they're back to that. And really kudos to the people involved with Arrow and Supernatural. God, getting that success this season. They've really, Indeed. it's well deserved. Indeed. The Walking Dead beats its own record ratings. Wow. The Walking Dead returned from its mid-season break and promptly set new series records as it continues to be television's hottest property among cable, network TV, or otherwise. Last night's Ho-Hum episode drew 12.3 million viewers, and plenty of them were young enough to earn a 6-1 rating in the adult demo. That's crazy that for is cable. That is great numbers. <laughs> Yeah, both numbers qualify as series best for The Walking Dead, which becomes even more impressive when you consider that it was up against the well-rated Grammys. 
Heck, 4.1 million viewers even tuned into ATA favorite Nerdist podcast host Chris Hardwick's Talking Dead afterwards. This thing is unstoppable, and no showrunner will stand in its way. Nope. Red Brick Road, Wizard of Oz gets a Game of Thrones-style makeover. TV studio Warner Horizon could soon be paying a visit to Oz with a new fantasy series called Red Brick Road. Details are being kept under wraps, according to The Hollywood Reporter, but insiders describe the concept as a continuation of the Wizard of Oz story, but told in a Game of Thrones fashion, filled with politics, intrigue, and violence. Red Brick Road is created by artist Rob Pryor and has Mark Walper, Roy Lee, and Adrian Askeret set to executive produce. The project has no connection to Disney's upcoming Sam Raimi movie, Oz the Great and Powerful. But this concept actually intrigues me, and I hope it gets a chance to come to fruition. I love the fantasy genre, and the fantasy books and TV series like Games of Thrones are starting to really make it on TV. So I'm looking forward to see where this story might go. And it sounds really interesting. Yeah, I'm going to check that out for sure. Wonder Woman, the untold story of American superheroines documentary to air on PBS on April 15th. While the status of the Justice League movie she would be part of is murky, and the new CW pilot focused on her adventures as a young woman, Amazon, is not being ordered as a pilot just yet, Wonder Woman is the focus of a documentary that will be making its TV debut soon. From director Christy Guevara Flanagan, The documentary looks at the evolution and legacy of Wonder Woman, examining her status as the definitive superheroine and how the character has changed through the times, while continuing to influence and inspire fans. If you are a fan of strong female characters, and especially heroes, this documentary will be right up your alley. Look for it on April 15th on PBS. And that's rare that they've done a documentary dedicated to a hero that's not really been featured in film so much. It's very interesting. I'll check that out as well. Harry Potter's Rupert Grint to star as superhero in Greg Garcia's CBS comedy pilot Super Clyde. Hmm. Harry Potter alum Rupert Grint is set to make his network series regular debut in Super Clyde, a new CBS superhero comedy from Greg Garcia, the creator of My Name is Earl and Raising Hope. Grint, who played Ron Weasley in the Harry Potter cinematic franchise, will star in the new series as Clyde, a meek, unassuming fast food worker who decides to become a superhero. The series is described as an avid comic book reader considers himself a borderline agoraphobic with mild to severe anxiety issues who wishes he were a superhero himself. When he inherits a hundred thousand a month inheritance from his long dead eccentric Uncle Bill, he decides that the cash will be his secret superpower and will use it only for good and reward the good hearted. This sounds amazing. And how did we not hear about it before this? Anyway, again, hopefully this show gets a chance because I think it's going to be fun and I'd love to see Ron Weasley on TV. Is this out of writing off the success of Big Bang Theory that the CBS has gotten to go ahead for this? Uh, maybe, but I think it has more to do with Greg Garcia's success in the past. Why he, you know, it's getting a chance because he's had some great shows. Both My Name is Earl and Raising Hope have been unqualified successes. They are, they're great shows. And really, I think it's more on him and his writing style right. than any success that other shows have had on the network. Well, and it's extremely different for CBS. Yeah. It's outside their wheelhouse. We'll see how that plays out. Yep. I think it's going to be good. And that's the news with Nico for this week. Yeah. Very good stuff. A lot to ponder on there, Nico. Some good stuff coming in the future. Yeah, I think next year TV could be a lot of fun as everyone, I think, rushes to compete with S.H.I.E.L.D. 
So with that, we're going to bring in the expert on S.H.I.E.L.D., Andy. I know he's not going to talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. today, but he's here to talk about another ABC show whose future is kind of to be determined right now, because that's once upon a time. And he's here to talk with us about the episode Tiny. Kidnapped and brought to Storybrooke by Cora, the giant unleashes his vengeance on the town when a case of mistaken identity leads him to try and settle an old score with David. Mr. Gold, accompanied by Emma and Henry, attempts to depart Storybrooke, hoping to keep his memory intact when he crosses the town line and heads to the airport in search of his son, Bay. And Greg questions Belle as to what she saw on the night of his car accident. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale land that was, and against his brother's wishes, Anton the giant climbs down the beanstalk and attempts to befriend some humans whose intention may not be so noble this episode tiny was a really improving episode for the character Anton, uh, aka the giant because at the first episode we kind of felt he was kind of cheesy uh, with some you know with most of his physical action because he was just running and screaming oh and chasing uh, emma and but this episode really fleshed him out and made him a more, much more likable character and i'm at, at this point i'm actually hoping he will stick around because yeah. he i feel i felt sorry for him and what went down in fairytale land yes this is the more of the character that Jorge Garcia, who everyone knows as Hurley from Lost. He's a big character on that show. Plays. He's kind of the lovable loser. And so I was glad we got that here. Just It was a much better situation. I totally agree. I haven't seen Lost, though, but I can imagine that that's why they, people love him so much. So I'm glad that they're bringing this to this show as well. Something that I wanted to was that this episode featured was a guest, the guest appearance of the amazing Cassidy Freeman, who we all loved as Tess Mercer from Smallville, who here played Jacqueline, or Jack as she preferred, a different take on Jack the Giant Killer Slayer character. And I was loving every minute of it. There were so many things I was surprised with. One, that they didn't make a big deal out of her joining this episode like until a few weeks ago. Like, a few weeks after the episode description was released. I was disappointed, though, most disappointed, though, with that, that she got killed off. Because it seems that any sci-fi show that she does, she will just get stabbed in her body by a sword. But you know, one day she's going to take vengeance on the world and take it over. Because, she, you know, how, how many more uh, sword stabs can she deal with before she go bad no but i was glad that they, sh- uh, but they she picked deserved it. it here though andy well but, uh, yeah because of longmire thing because she has another show that she's a serious regular on so well, still we got cassidy freeman deserves to get stabbed i think she deserves it just for what happened at the end for her kind of betraying the poor giant but it's it's killing Cass- his father true that was kind of mean but but it's also Cass- bad that that uh what's his face henry left her there as well yeah, I, I actually, I didn't know that he, I never got the intention that he was such a reckless douche when we saw him like a season ago. So I think it was good that they made him that way. So we understood why he needed to die. Yeah. And it also made the king look like more of a evil villain as well. Yeah. Which I think was needed because I think he's going to show up again as a threat. Oh, definitely. I was the only thing with the whole Jack thing was that I was really hoping that she would survive, so she, she could appear like at least another episode later on, you know, to encounter Anton in Storybrooke. But you know, we can't get what we all want. N- moving on to the next thing, which is I think one of the bigger discussion points here is that this could just be me being a little bit paranoid or whatever. But the comment that Hook gave about the ship being made of enchanted wood was that a possible hint to that the show that might that the show might be coming to an end this season or at least a hint that we might see our characters back in the fairytale land sooner than we had expected because you know there was a lot of hints in this episode that they might be taking a journey back to that land 
And given the fact where the, how, that the rating hasn't been doing that well for the past couple of episodes, it's I'm a little bit worried. What do you think, Dan? Here's my thoughts. If it gets canceled, they all go back to the fairy tale land. If it doesn't get canceled, I think we're going to get what they did on Fringe, where it's going to be a split between the worlds. Fringe was a show that existed in two different worlds, our world and a parallel universe. I think we're going to get the same situation with Once Upon a Time. But I don't know if the ship is going to be what gets them in the new world. I think not ju- not, not just that one. The beanstalk thing. Yeah, but I think the ship will be the tra- the, the vehicle, basically, like right. you know, the the thing they will use for. It because who knows? Maybe the ship will somebody will, somebody will go and just burn that ship down. Who knows? You know, it's um, I I don't want I, I absolutely don't want right. to see the show go go because I love the show. But I don't get- think them going over there. If they do go over there for next season, it's going to be so Henry can go and experience the world because I think he's curious to see it. Well, which kid would would not be curious to see it? Like, but I really hope it happened because the way that they did the crossover this year with Emma and Snow being with Mulan and Sleeping Beauty, what th- that didn't work. So I hope it like maybe they, they learn from their first attempt and they will do better in the, the next one. But let's move on to Greg, who believes the amnesia bell about everyone thinks she's crazy, but he doesn't. And I'm one, and I think that they basically said that that she's going to be the leak about the existence of magic and storybook to the whole world. She's annoying me in this plotline, though. Bell is. I- I'm annoyed by the plot, not by her. Okay, so the, the whole plot. Okay. I like because I like Bell. I like the actress. I like that damn. A- accent as well um she was but I, until she got this amnesia thing yeah so yeah it's yeah exactly that's that's what i'm saying i'm annoyed by the storyline they that they have put her up in not actually the character because she's never been annoying and moving on to the next thing um what well, was quick, one one quick uh, thing about that andy i would have just been fine if greg was the threat to expose it that bell wasn't wrapped up in this plot line but I can see why they want went with Bell because I think they want to k- kind of make it um, a bigger. I think it will have a bigger effect as a story if it's actually one of the people that we, one of the, our main characters that will be part of revealing it to the world. That's why I think they used one of our characters, not just you know this random you know human, so to say. But that's what what, what I think. I, but I agree with you. I would have been fine if it had just been Greg going and like, yeah, there's magic here and whatever. But we should move on to the next point, which is Regina, who was kind of weird. And I think it has Cora all over it. But was it her being in disguise? Or has she done something to Regina's mind through magic? That's possible. I think either one is the option. My sister thinks it's Cora disguised as Regina because she just felt it was such a radical change for mm-hmm. Regina's character that it had to be her. Because there wasn't really a solid explanation as to why she's gone bad again. Yeah. Especially with Henry. I mean, that was such a strong character trait of her not wanting to hurt Henry. Being well, I right agree. Being a mom for Henry. That this makes no sense why she would do this. I think, actually, to be honest, like I don't think it's Regina, Cora having cast, cast a spell on her mind. I think that Regina has been either been like locked up somewhere by Cora because I, Regina wouldn't let her guard down so much because she's right. a p- powerful witch. Right. But it's a good thing to, te- to tease us for the next upcoming episodes. And moving on to Mr. Gold, I don't think he likes being in our world that much outside Storybrooke. Without I, he's magic. not without magic. It kind of came off as him being addicted, like a drug addict, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It was kind of painful to watch. I'm like, I just didn't like to see him in pain, like, because he was 
shaking. He was start, and when the, the minute that he started banging on that, or was it that he started banging on? Was it just a metal wall or whatever? It was like a what they would have in a bathroom. They have like paper in there. Oh right, see because it's dirty. Yeah, it's like that dispenser. Mm-hmm. But it was like that, almost like self abuse, which is something that people you know relapsing from drugs would do. So this was kind of a good yeah, metaphor, basically. Very good point there, Andy. I just felt sorry for him. Like you know, we don't hate Mr. Gold. He's you know he's badass, and it's like it's. I was wondering like, how once the scarf is off, I'm wondering like, how long do, can he like resist or like keep you know right. keep his memories before it poops. Well, I think now that it's back on him, I think that'll be fine. I don't think we need two characters having amnesia. Plus, that would just ruin all the conflict of him. Oh, I hope his son. I, I agree. I really please writers don't do what you guys want to do. Just make him get through this. He's be, it's his son. Think of the children. No, but let's um some. Fe- well, it gives only- room. It also gives room for. I think Emma needs to be the badass in this story. So I think him not having his powers leaves room for that. But as I said before we started talking, I thought it would be cool if you know, Mr. Gold started transforming into his Rumpelstiltskin persona again. Like, that would be nuts up on the plane. On the plane. <laughs> or when he was looking at the bathroom mirror. You know, I thought when he looked at the bathroom mirror, that one part where we discovered he was losing magic, that his face was going to all of a sudden change back to the mean, scary, rumple still skin we know from the fairy tale world. I would love to see how Emma re- react to his, his voice, though, because you know how it is. I don't but know moving how on the to. Air Marshall's going to deal with that one on the air flight if that happened. Well, um, keep praying or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, let's move on to some, just two small odds and end this week. It was ironic because after the scene when Jacqueline introduced herself as Jacqueline and then said, like, Jack, they cut directly to a commercial of that new Jack movie. I'm like, that was a per. So it, I was just chuckling a little bit. And I the other how thing. How Brian Singer paid to get that there? Probably for as much as he, they had to pay for doing that Return to Krypton sequence or whatever from Superman Returns. It's a waste of money. The whole movie was a waste of money, but we're not here to fuck a Superman. That's the last thing. Clearly, laws doesn't exist anymore in Storybooks because Emma, who is, while she is the biological mother of Henry, she's not legally the mother. So she just felt like she could take Henry with her as she pleased, despite for good reason. And like, listen to me, girlfriend, you can get arrested for that. Yeah. So, but it seems like the laws are, there are no more laws in this world. She's with Mr. With Mr. Gold. She could break laws when she's with him. Well, uh, it kind of makes a good point. But otherwise, this was a great episode, g- really good episode for a previous guest star, which was the yeah. giant. And I ho- and I hope he will stick around for a few episodes. I liked how this episode was like a Buffy feeling episode. I agree. Where there was a threat in the small town, and everyone had to rally together to deal with it. Exactly. I like that, and I think that's what people are looking for with this show. Yeah. No, but otherwise, this was a great episode with there was with Mr. Gold with the mystery that is. Regina slash Cora. Yeah, I like this episode, and I would make sure to tune in for next week's episode, which will, after that, there will be another break, just for one week, because of the Academy Awards. But I'm going to tell you, folks, next week's going to be a shocker, because I am predicting that we are going to discover that Mr. Gold's son, Bay, is really Henry's father. So you're shutting down my theory, then, about him being Peter Pan, huh? I think that's going to play a factor in there too guys make sure to tune in for the, for the series finale of Andy being with Dan on the Once Upon a Time section because that was <laughs> I think they're going to play into each other Andy I, I think it's all going to come out next week I, I was ki- dude I was kidding I know oh my god the conflicts the drama yes <laughs> okay alright thanks Andy for joining us great to have your thoughts on an interesting episode that I think is set up for a big surprise next week and with that, we're going to move on to talking about one of ABC's success shows, which I think will for sure be around next year. Because that's Castle with the episode Reality Starstruck.
Castle and Beckett's latest case involves the murder of a rising star. Things don't go as planned when Castle tries to give Beckett a Valentine's Day gift. This week's Castle took a little while to pique my interest, because I felt its intelligent commentary on reality shows was a retread of previous episodes. I mean, I guess this makes sense from the writer's standpoint, as the stories I'm thinking about were some great outings for this show. However, in my book, this was a mystery with nothing we really haven't seen before, besides a great performance from the actor who played the producer of The Wives of Wall Street. That was the reality show that this mystery focused on, because he really seemed to capture everything that's wrong with reality shows, and why Nico and I think scripted shows are better. So Nico, were you on the same page because I was with thinking this mystery was a retread of some great mysteries from this show's past revolving around reality television? Yep, Dan. I was not as excited for the return of reality television as many Castle fans seem to be on the internet. Yeah. Much like you, this week's mystery saved what would otherwise have been a retread of previous mysteries and storylines from the show into an actually very entertaining and decent episode of Castle that gave us some laughs, a good mystery, and just about everything we want from a week of Castle. I think it was merely missing a good Castle home story with Alexis and Martha, but I think that's coming in the Castle's dad story arc coming later this year. Yes. And really, another aspect that kind of, I guess, sucked me out of the episode in the beginning, at least the first 20 minutes, was how much they underplayed Gina Torres. Normally, Castle's writers are all about playing up the Firefly connection for the Nathan Fillin fans who followed him to this show. But with Gina Torres, we didn't get a single Firefly reference. In fact, she didn't even have any scenes with Nathan Fillin. Could barely spend any time in the same room as Castle during this episode. So, Nico, were you disappointed by this guest spot in the episode? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. She should have been brought in in a different role, I think. She essentially was playing her character from Suits in this Castle episode and in no way resembled her Zoe character. I wish she had come in as maybe a hard-nosed cop, much like Adam Baldwin did, or she had been able to interact with Nathan Fillon more in some role, whatever character role they gave her. Again, much like Adam Baldwin did when he guest starred. It was an unfortunate use of her talent from a Firefly fan's standpoint, but I felt she plays that strong executive woman equally well as the tough hero that was Zoe. So I was only disappointed that we didn't get the great interactions with Nathan Fillon, but I was not at all in her performance because I, I think she plays this role very, very well. Yeah, I agree with you. I just thought it was somewhat underused here. Oh, absolutely. And she could have been this businesswoman type character as maybe a former publisher to Castle or something like that. Yeah, I think if they had made a personal connection between the two, it would have been better for us. And we would have seen them go back and forth and have some fun with the guest spot. Unfortunately, they didn't go that route. And that was mainly because I just didn't think they had time here. Yeah, I think you're right. With some of the other stuff they want to cover. And really, that's kind of what goes into what got me into this episode eventually, was the character interactions that we got to see in this episode. At the end of the night, I was able to classify this as an enjoyable episode. And I can't believe I've said this, but some of the best stuff when it came to those character interactions came from Captain Gates bonding with Castle over their addiction for the wives of Wall Street. I don't know if praising the ground Nathan Fillon walks on made me overlook my dislike for Captain Gates, or the character being less abrasive here because making her grow on me. But Gates and Castle gasping and freaking out about spoilers because the discovery of the plotlines of the Wives of Wall Street weren't what they were cracked up to be provided something different to the writers commentating on reality shows that I was looking for earlier on in the episode in a way that made me chuckle. 
Although, now that the writers have done both a funny and dramatic take on reality shows, I think it's time for them to move away from this theme. Because after this episode, I just feel that they've taken it to the max. Because there's really nothing left to work with. So, Nico, did this interaction between Captain Gates and Castle amuse you while providing that different take on the reality show theme that I mentioned? Or am I taking crazy pills this week? Dan, I mentioned last week that I thought there was a change coming in the Captain Gates character and how she interacts with the team and that she will become more of a member of the team against Bracken in the future rather than just their captain who kind of was very abrasive. I think this week's episode took yet another step towards that new Captain Gates character that this is less abrasive and more a member of the team, as I was mentioning. I thought the interactions between Castle and Gates greatly accentuated that change. As for the reality TV theme, I agree that I don't need to see another Castle take on the genre. We've had comedy. Now we've had a dramatic interpretation. We don't need any more. I'm getting a little sick of it. I know it's fun when they make fun of it, and we love to make fun of reality television, but I don't need to see any more on Castle. Right, and the thing of it is, I don't want anyone to get the idea that it wasn't successful before, because it was, but this is the fourth time they've done it. Yeah. And so I I get you got to go with what works, but this is taking that too far. Yeah. And real quick, I want to ask the change with Captain Gates in this. Did it feel natural to you? Yes. Okay, it didn't feel like a flip of the switch kind of thing. No, I think because we've we've seen it this entire season, essentially since the season premiere. Yes. The season premiere this year, there has been a little bit of a change. I felt it was really gradual and a very natural feel. If it had been just over a single episode or even two back-to-back episodes, it would have felt rushed or unnatural but this has been building all season so i think now that we're in the 13th episode it makes a lot more sense yeah and at the same time captain gates and castle bonding over the wives of wall street built up nicely into my favorite plotline of the episode which was castle the gift ninja accidentally putting his valentine's day gift for beckett to gates blazer in my opinion, if it wasn't for this complication, we would have never had the great scene that acted as the catalyst, sparking my enjoyment of this episode, where the interplay of cuts between Castle trying to sneak the gift out of Gates's pocket, got Beckett acting like she was freaking out, got Bob, one of the wimpy husbands of Wall Street, provided the dose of humorous momentum needed for me to ride this episode out to the end, with interest in the story. So Nico, what did you think of Castle's mishap with the Valentine's Day gift? Did you think it had as good of a comedic effect as I did? Especially with the interplay between Beckett and Castle, because that scene where the wimpy Bob guy was being interrogated? Yeah, Dan, it was enjoyable and worked to great comedic effect. I thought it would almost have been even better if he had been able to actually pickpocket Gates, after all, and been a true gift ninja. But ultimately, I think the final scene with Gates and Castle was more important to the overall change of Gates' character that the writers went that way to set up future character development rather than a comedic payoff here. And really, the scene with Gates turned out to be pretty funny anyway, so I was happy regardless. So yeah, I think it all worked. Yeah, and they've kind of developed it that that's meant to happen between Castle and Gates. Yeah. That's their relationship. Once he gets that moment where she finally warms up to him, he blows it all the time. Oh, yeah. You know, it's it's a very, I would say, like Newman-Jerry situation. Okay. Like you get on Seinfeld. Yeah. That's kind of where they're going with uh, Castle and Gates. And that's fun. I mean, it works. And in addition to, you know, Castle's aspirations to impress, once again, classically backfiring on him, the writers tried to use the earrings mix-up to keep the shippers in suspense, as Gates finding out the gift was meant for Beckett, put in their partnership. Although with this episode being so lighthearted, it was, it was pretty obvious we were going to get the scenario where Gates took the earrings as Castle hitting on her. 
which made me laugh when the scene was taking place. But after the episode was over, it began to bother me a little bit, because I felt Gates is kind of way too smart to figure out that the earrings were intended for Beckett. God, did this kind of thing bother you a bit, Nico? No, Dan, it didn't. I okay. figure if Gates is so smart, she also re- realizes how great of a team Castle, Beckett, Ryan, and Esposito are right. and will not mess that up unless she is forced to by Castle and Beckett doing something stupid and that she has to acknowledge their relationship. She probably already suspects it but does not want to dig further so she'd be forced to make a decision to break up the team up. She might not be Castle's biggest fan, but she can't deny the team gets results. And once again, maybe I should have read further in your notes because it seems that that was the same thought your mom had. Yes, she had that thought. But also the one thing she added on to that was Kyle Gates. She wants her department to look good. Mm -hmm. That's very important to her. So she's not going to ruin something that makes her look good. Right. So that's the other part of it that makes sense. But I do think with what's coming next week, there's a big thing that's going to happen next week. That issue where she, where their relationship might impede their work may come into play. Okay. And Gates may have to say, I don't. I honestly don't think she's going to break the team up, but I think she's going to have to acknowledge that she knows. Okay. I, I really do, and I think her kind of accepting it and let it go because that final step got her becoming a part of the team. Yeah. Because so it did happen here because they want to develop into it more, much more naturally. And I think Captain Gates may do something next week or the week after because it is a two-part episode, so it's one story to make us warm up to her. Okay. In a way like the captain did get his final appearance. Previous captain did. Yeah. So I think we're going to get something like that where you're like, okay, I like her now because she backed up the team or saved someone's life or, you know, did something good. So we'll, we'll see. I, I don't want to say good. I want to say more heroic. You know, she she does the right thing and I don't, I don't know if she saves someone's life or what's going to happen with that. So, yeah. Okay. And really, my next point was your thoughts on that explanation, but we kind of covered that already. So with something like that earring mix-up, it really runs the risk of being cutesy. But with Valentine's Day being this week, I really felt the sappy humor work for me, as I was in a romantic comedy kind of mood. But for those of you who are looking for something a little more serious when it came to love, this episode I felt provided as well, with Beckett's Valentine's gift to Castle being his own drawer at her apartment, which was a great heartwarming indicator that she's opening herself up to Castle even farther. Then you gotta love that. So with a heartwarming ending, a decent mystery, fun romantic comedy, a pitch of Ryan trying to get his wife pregnant, got a dash of Esposito getting back with Lady, ditching that silly plotline with the bodyguard from a few weeks ago, what should have been another throwaway holiday episode of Castle cooked up something goddessly sweet. That doesn't happen a lot by current network television. So Nico, what were your thoughts on all the Valentine's Day outcomes for all of our favorite characters? And uh, did you have any final thoughts on the episode? Yeah, Dan. Everything seemed to work out well this week on Castle. I was really happy to see Lainey and Espo getting back together, or at least dating again. That was probably my favorite Valentine's moment. Castle and Beckett's moments were excellent as well, especially the drawer, which was the perfect thing for Castle. All in all, this was a good episode that had everything we were looking for. Good mystery, fun romantic comedy, and a little love story for all the main characters. Well, minus Martha and Alexis. I think their part was very diminished this week. But essentially, this was a good episode and really a lot better than I thought after the first 10 minutes. Yes, I agree. And I think that Martha-Alexis thing will be resolved next week, but not in a way that you're going to like. Okay. <laughs> so I'm just saying, right now, I'm, I'm tempted to bring it up, to talk about it. I don't know if we should just wait to the episode. I think um, we should just wait. Yeah, I think we will too, but God, this is a happy ending. I'd say everyone enjoy it while it lasts. That's all I'm going to say there. 
So really, I mean, I liked it, and it was great for Valentine's Day. Yep. And uh, it's two really great holiday-themed episodes in a row. And uh, TV.com was joking that they want to see what they do for Easter. <laughs> right. So I thought that was kind of amusing. So with that, you want to keep the Valentine's Day theme rolling, Nico? Indeed. All right, let's keep it rolling with the Modern Family episode. Get titled Heartbroken. Phil and Claire's alter egos, Clive and Juliana reunite for valentine's day but their rendezvous puts claire in the hospital meanwhile jay and gloria's romantic evening is marred by the kids interruptions and mitchell and cameron throw a wild party that leaves them wondering what happened the night before and why dylan is their new housemate this week's modern family got a very different story structure than episodes we've seen before because it was divided into three parts focusing on each family individually instead of intercutting between each of them I personally thought this was a breath of fresh air for the show, but my dad felt the different structure made the episode a ridiculous mess that was just firing off random bits of humor. Again, I can't speak for you listeners if you agreed with my opinion regarding the episode or my dad's, but with this episode having a different structure, I'm going to share my favorite comedic moments from each family's individual stories rather than choosing a moment to sew up the humor for the entire episode. With the Dumpy family storyline, my favorite comedic moments would have to be Phil shutting down the party his kids tried to have by saying, everyone I did not create, get out of my house. Everybody who I did not create, get out of my house right now. And then I got a good chuckle out of Claire, announcing that everyone is just fine because she walks out of the room, nonchalantly telling Haley to revive Alex, who passed out at the sight of Phil's bloody nose. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment for the first storyline? Yeah, I loved when the kids busted in while Claire and Phil were starting to make out and they turn on the lights and Claire's covered in blood and Phil yells, Oh my god, I did it again! Just the whole Phil and Claire storyline was my favorite of the episode. And I think you mentioned my favorite line of the episode. Everybody I did not create, get out of my house right now. That was a great line. Yes, it was outstanding. I really liked this story arc of... This episode. My dad said it kind of reminded him of Bill Cosby. His famous line, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. Yeah. That was the fun part of it as well. As for the Jay and Gloria story, my favorite comedic moment was a toss-up between Gloria's reaction to Jay declaring that they don't need to safety-proof the house for the baby because he used to drive to the supermarket with Mitchell LeClaire on the hood of his car. The human race has survived for a thousand years without these foam bumpers and, and, and gates everywhere. Hell, I used to drive to the supermarket with Mitchell and Claire on the hood of the car. When did everybody get so overprotective? Maybe when kids started flying off cars. At Jay's struggles with opening the safety gate, climb the stairs, being met with Lily opening the gate with ease. So what about this storyline, Nico? What would you like here? Yeah, my favorite Jay and Gloria moment was at the end when Manny ran into Jay in the hallway after Jay went to get some water to rehydrate after their lovemaking session. Yeah. And he told Manny to hold on to his story for from about last night for 10 seconds and come in and tell both of them because it got Jay off the hook for more sexy time. Yes. It was funny stuff. Yay! Coming, honey! Oh, God. There you are, Jay. I thought you'd never wake up. Turns out my night when my secret and my work couldn't have gone better. We danced all night, and the best part was her Manny, eyes were... Manny, Manny, dying to hear it. Wait ten seconds and come in and tell both of us. It was great. Wait for them to work together. Yeah. And finally with Mitchell and Cam, my favorite comedic moments would have to be Mitchell dyeing the cat pink with Kool-Aid, Dylan falling off the neighbor's roof when putting back their Christmas decorations, and Lily telling Dylan that he could not be her family's new housemate. 
Yeah, my favorite comedic moment from Mitchell and Cam's storyline would have to be the mini hangover knockoff theme of the entire yes. story arc. I know it's been done, but I still enjoyed Mitchell and Cam's take on the hangover and how it was Mitchell who got sauced and had the wild adventure. When you would expect, it would normally be Cam. So I thought that was a good, a fun twist. Go well, on the twist of Cam being the one that let Dylan stay. Yeah, exactly. Was great. Yep. And that's what made it a little different than the hangover thing as well, I felt. All right, so, you know, a great Valentine's Day outing for ABC Modern Family to go with Castle here. So, good stuff. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to an episode that really didn't have that much to do with Valentine's Day. It was pretty horrific and violent when it came to a Valentine's Day theme, so I guess it didn't work there. But there was some big stuff that happened here moving forward. So, let's talk now about the Supernatural episode entitled Trial and Error. Kevin translates the tablet and finds the way to close the gates of hell. He tells Sam and Dean that in order to do so, one person has to face three tasks designed by God, one of which is killing a hellhound, and the brothers argue about who should complete the tasks. For the third or probably fourth consecutive week in a row, this episode of Supernatural had me be excited to continue the season story arc with the Winchesters, as we got some great character moments where Dean basked in the glory of having his own room for the first time ever in the Men of Letters library, and showed off his mad skills in the kitchen because he served up some mouth-watering burgers for himself and Sam. Seriously, Dean Winchester could come over and grill at my house anytime because those things looked goddamn delicious. In addition, it was great to have Kevin back on this episode and see him succeed at figuring out how to close the gate to hell. But what I took away the most from his scenes was the brothers being concerned about Kevin not taking care of himself because it's just more evidence supporting my endgame of Sam and Dean being mentors to younger hunters while sort of living a normal life. Again, I feel like Dean should have been the one to give Kevin the pep talk about saving the world being a marathon rather than Sam, because I think Kevin and Dean need to have a connection or they can go out on the road with each other as hunters at the end of the series. Although based on what Dean said in this episode about thinking that his endgame is dying with a gun in his hands, I don't think he feels the need to connect with Kevin at this point. But I think that will change based on a prediction I'm going to save until later on in the discussion. So Nico, what was your thoughts on the scenes got the library and Kevin's return? As I've said for the last two weeks, I'm really digging this whole Men of Letters story arc, and I like that we are continuing to see them spending time in the Men of Letters library. Now, as for the return of Kevin, I had mixed feelings about this. I thought that you were correct that it should have been Dean that gave Kevin the pep talk, but here's why I think it was Sam. I think Kevin is going to push himself too hard and too far in a future episode, and possibly even OD on those pep pills Dean gave him, and that will be when Dean takes responsibility for Kevin and takes him under his wing. And that might be when they start their friendship that'll eventually lead to your theory of them ending up as partners. I know that is where you think that it is inevitably going, but I still have to laugh every time you say it like it's already written in stone because it is just a theory at this point but i do I like, want it to be real i like your conviction remember this is just our theory and while it is a great theory things can easily go another way and we're always surprised when they were like wait a minute we were gonna go this way anyway <laughs> with regards to kevin i'm getting a little sick of him being relegated to the research position and just hiding out in that ship so i was disappointed that he did not head out with the winchesters on this excursion i understand he has a target on his head and he's public enemy number one for all demons but still he's got to get out of that ship eventually and maybe the od thing is what gets him out of there 
Yeah, I think so. Too. Maybe they're building up to that. I like your idea. I just hope people are complaining because it's too after school special. Like, well, I think he's just going to end up, you know, like he said, he had maybe had a mini stroke in this episode. Well, he's going to yeah. start adding pills to that to keep himself up. And I think that he's just going to push it to the point where he does yeah. pass out or he ends up, they find him on the floor and he's unconscious. And I think that's when Dean's going to be like, whoa. <laughs> and that's a better way to handle it than demon blood. Yeah. Because I, I just don't think there's time for Kevin to go off the rails and bring him back again and do all that. Well, we wouldn't want to retread like that. Right, exactly. That's that's the right thing, too. Can about your theory, about my theory, could be saying I want it set in stone. I mean, I'm kind of hoping it's right because every time this show does something that we, I guess, don't want to do or is different than where we want it to go, it turns out bad. That's true. So that's why I'm like, I want it to go our way because the other way has been bad. But again, I'm beginning to trust Jeremy Carver where he's taking the show more and more every week. Oh, yeah especially with the metal letters thing. So if they do something different, maybe it'll work out. Maybe it will be for the best. Mm -hmm. In regards to the individual plot line for this episode, I don't really have much to say about it. As a hellhound going after a family that resembled the Ewings from Dallas was just a bridge to get us from point A to point B. Aside from some vicious deaths that made me cringe, Indeed connecting with the ranch handler who made a crossroads deal to cure her mother of Parkinson's disease as it was like the eldest Winchester brother looking through the mirror got a season three version of himself. Nico, did you get much out of this story with the Dallas-like family? Or did you feel that this was an unimportant device to push the story forward as the scenes between the brothers were really what we're supposed to take away from the episode? No, Dan, I agree. This story was purely a plot to get us where the overall story arc was going. And besides really Dean and the ranch hand lady, it was pretty forgettable. But you're right. The Sam and Dean scenes were the only ones of any importance this week. Yeah, and I don't want anyone to think that this was really a throwaway episode because there were some good things going on with the brothers. It's just that plotline to get there was kind of pointless. And that's okay because that's the kind of the storylines we normally get from CW shows in February. Right. They're always those push the story forward, just really is fluff. And aside from the Dallas family plotline being disinteresting to me, my other criticism of this episode was going to be Dean being so gung-ho about going after a hellhound as the events at the end of season three made him terrified of these invisible butts. I mean, it just seemed out of character at first, but then once Dean explained that he believed completing the trials meant one of them would end up dead, like all the other times they took out a big bad, I bought into why he was so driven. However, with Dean being my favorite character, it paid me to hear him say that there's no way out for him except death. Still, I've got to respect Dean for wanting his brother to have a normal life, because that's one of the reasons why I love his character. So, Nico, what did you make of this reaction by Deed? Did you have the same experience I had of being put off by Deed, not displaying his normal fear of hellhounds, and then accepting it once it was explained? Dan, I felt that Dean not being as affected by the hellhounds this time around was actually probably a result of him having spent the year in purgatory and having an entire year going up against things that are equally dangerous and difficult to kill as hellhounds made these beasts that ripped him to shreds in Season 3 not nearly as frightening to him anymore. So rather than being upset by or put off by this, it showed me that Dean has not only sharpened his hunting skills while in purgatory, he seems to have steeled himself against some of his deepest and darkest fears. So no, I was much less put off by Dean's apparent gung-ho approach when it came to the Hellhounds this week and really felt that maybe this was the underlying reason that he was a little bit more open to it or a little more gung-ho. And now that you say that, that makes complete sense. Mm -hmm. But it's been so long since we've seen the purgatory flashbacks. Right. Or really much mentions of it. I almost forgot about it. 
which I, I don't I don't think that's a lack of things with the writers or anything like that. I just I kind of blanked because we've seen the Hellhounds be scary so many more times before to him that I kind of forgot about that little purgatory aspect. Okay. Yeah. Thankfully, before we doubled back into Supernatural's beat-to-death cycle of the brothers always trying to sacrifice themselves for each other, Sam, who has earned the title of the clutch character of Season 8 in my book for taking the show in new, fresh directions we've never seen before, came in to save the day with another fresh direction, because he has need to trust him with taking on the trials, as he sees a light at the end of the tunnel, which is a world that needs Dean as a hunter keeping people safe. So, Nico, were you satisfied with how Sam came to and explained this conclusion to his brother? Yeah, I was. I think this was finally will allow Sam to have that redemption story we've been looking for for the last two and a half years since the season five finale. So, yeah, I think these trials will test Sam, not only with his ability to kill demons, hellhounds or whatever they send towards the Winchesters and and put in their way, but it will test his resolve, test his soul and test his worthiness, really. I think we saw that when he recounted the spell and his arm looked as if it was burning from the inside. I think with each successive challenge, this will purge his soul of impurities or any evil or malice and he has and purify him for the final test of closing the gates. I think with each successive successful task completed, the purge will be more severe and more painful. So ultimately in the end, Sam will get his redemption through purging his soul of any damage or evil Lucifer did while he was in the pit. This will be an even bigger cleaning than what Cass gave him in the insane asylum. So that's kind of like my idea of what happened there. I know you had a little bit different idea of what happened to him, but that was kind of what I got when I saw what happened. Like, cause he was in pain, he cried out and I felt like it was the starting of like a, almost a spiritual cleanse or something. But you think it's going to end much more positive than season five with him being trapped for eternity. Yeah. I think that before he can close the gates, he'll have to go through not only physical trials, these three physical trials, but he'll have to go through a spiritual trial as well well, which will be this sort of cleansing or this painful internal struggle. And once he proves himself worthy, then he'll be able to close the gates. So, I mean, you're going with the idea, because I had this question here, that the writers made the right choice to go with Sam to do this for the redemption storyline. Yes. And for us finally get to, to get that to happen. Yeah, I, I believe so. Okay, yeah. I like that. I like that theory, too. There were some things that I didn't think of with this, and I'm glad you brought these up, Nico. It's really interesting. Yeah. And I like that, and it's enhancing my theories as well. And with my theory, I had two different ones. The first one kind of came up because I miswatched it the first time. The first time I watched, like... Sam's little transformation after reading this spell. I thought his arm became hairy and that he was changing into some kind of demonic werewolf thing. But then I went back and watched it again because that just didn't seem right. And it seemed like his arm, Sam's arm glowed red in a similar fashion to Dean's arm when he carried Benny out of purgatory. Right. So I was wondering if that meant completing the trials what a soul from purgatory inside of sam that could close the gates and i was wondering you know if that soul would belong to like a leviathan or someone like dick roman now that you mentioned your theory nico i like that better okay because i'm tired of like weird things happening to sam like losing his soul or being possessed by demon blood or lucifer being inside of him i think the cleansing is different than that right i don't think that's as weird yeah and you know that arm becoming hairy thing i saw it too i mean i thought that's what it did first okay before the fire came and so like i i was like what (laughs) so yeah it was weird so don't feel like it was okay so there's a lot of things going on there yeah it looked like it 
it turned hairy and then it went like fiery. And so like, it was almost like it was bringing out something that maybe was in him or could have been in him. And you know, like, I don't know. It really was weird. And it's so, like evil. Yeah. Now the other thing is who had that theory. Was it Michael that Lucifer could somehow come back into the story? Yeah, I think it was Michael that had that theory. Mm-hmm. Maybe the cleansing is getting what's the remains of Lucifer that cast locked away out of him. That would be interesting, and he'll have to face that maybe as yep. part of his trial. Yeah, that'd be great. Or that could be a you know the final season villain. They have to take down Lucifer again. Could take him down for good this time. It'd be interesting. Could they get the actor back? Well, they got him back last year. I'm hoping they. I would think they they could get him back again. Yeah, it'll probably really depend on how many and the number of episodes they need. Yeah, and, and if they, if it doesn't work out, they've got Crowley. True. And Mark A. Shepard can carry it. We all know that. Right. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. I also had like a theory thrown out there that, and this could still work with your theory, Nico, and helping him deal with stuff, is that stopping whatever's inside of Sam, like if, if it is an evil thing or getting through this cleansing or something like that, I think that's going to also play a part in establishing the bond between Kevin and Dean. Okay. And I think it may also, in helping Sam overcome this, will bring Amelia back into the story. And again, this might be the Valentine's Day romantic in me talking, but I'm kind of believing that a way that Sam gets through some of these trials is Amelia love for him that that's going to play a part in that too i mean it sounds sappy but so far all the brothers really have seen throughout this show are the negative effects of the supernatural maybe it's time for them to see the positive since this show does involve god and his trials are made by god so maybe it's about time we see him come out as a symbol of hope here like many people believe him to be yeah so i mean do you think that's possible yeah i like that theory and i do think that amelia or thoughts of amelia either her love or thoughts of her love will actually sustain him during this trial and it'll give him something to fight for when he maybe is considering giving up or it becomes too painful he'll think of her and it'll help steal him against his trial and i think that you know love being the the thing that conquers all or helps conquer all is a good good message and a good it's a very traditional theme yeah and i think it's what is making sam see that light of the tunnel yeah he believes in Exactly. I think that's a big part in that. And I think we need that. And I think, you know, Ian is even saying the end game I see for you is being with this Amelia. So she has to come back for that to happen. And I'm curious, I'm curious to see an interaction between Dean and Amelia and where that goes. Because I bet they both kind of have perceptions of each other that needs to be ironed out or worked out. That would be interesting to see. Because, again, it's the idea of almost Dean passing on the torch. Right. You know, I've looked after him. Now it's it goes to you. Because essentially, I mean, this is the really only family Sam has. And, you know, you normally have the parents pass on, you know, the younger kid. But since there's not parents, it's up to Dean to do that. Because so we need a moment like that as well. Because I just think it'll be really nice. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So I think that sums it up for Supernatural this week. Just interested to see how this story is going to play out and what these trials mean for Sam and Dean. And hopefully it ends on a good note this time. Yeah, hopefully. Knock on wood. All right. So do you want to continue talking about the paranormal? Indeed. Yes. Community got some supernatural elements to it. Well, sort of. But we had a real fun episode of Community. Come a little off on the holidays, but it's a lot of fun. Called Paranormal Parentage. The gang wander through Pierce's eerie mansion on Halloween in order to free him from his locked panic room. While looking for the code to open the room, the gang uncovers some of the house's secrets. It wouldn't be Valentine's Day without community celebrating Halloween. Wait, did I say that right? 
actually I did because as long as you haven't been living in a cave over the past year, you've probably heard that Community's original season four premiere date was pushed back. And as a result, we ended up with a Halloween episode during the week of Valentine's Day, which the creative forces behind the show turned into an epic marketing event called Valloween, where the secrets of Pierce's mansion was revealed in a Scooby-Doo-like spoof with the study group. Personally, I didn't think this episode lived up to the full potential that knocking off Scooby-Doo could bring to the show. But I have to give the writers credit for pulling off some decent parodies on popular horror movies, with the ghost of Pierce's father coming out of a portrait made from Ghostbusters 2, Ahmed observing the study group from a secret control room like Jigsaw from the Saw movies, at the end of the episode referencing the classic bookcase scene from Young Frankenstein. However, my favorite moment out of all these spoofs was Jeff telling Annie to dress up as his ring girl and she showed up looking like the freaky girl from the ring movie instead of one of the sexy girls who stand ringside during boxing matches in Vegas. And this joke was topped off beautifully by the Dean showing up dressed as the true ring girl. Dean, 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 to your corner, spiders. Someone save me a towel. <laughs> also, my other favorite comedic moment from this episode would have to be surely freaking out about Troy finally seeing Pierce's indoor swing room because I don't know if it's her tone of voice or mannerisms. But ever since I first saw her on the Nickelodeon sitcom Drake and Josh, Yvette Nicole Brown's reactions to something uncomfortable always causes me to crack up laughing. And that's exactly what happened here with the discovery of this room. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's community? My favorite comedic moment from this week's community was Pierce's attempt to pull off a haunted mansion despite everyone suspecting that he was indeed trying to do that. Bet you didn't expect me to fake a haunted house to teach you a lesson. That's exactly what we expected. But still, it worked fairly well. I also love that Troy had to memorize all those fun facts as he was essentially giving the group a guided tour of the mansion. Guys, over here. Mr. Hawthorne's panic room. One of the 27 stops on the guided tour I had to memorize before moving into Hawthorne Manor. Does the house get many visitors? You're the first. I also loved all the old Chevy Chase portraits from his previous films lying around yeah. the mansion. Also, when Abed finds the secret door in Pierce's office, he says, This is the greatest thing that has ever happened to me. Great stuff. This episode was sneaky funny and way better on the second viewing. I laughed even okay. more the second time through than I did the first time. I need to watch it again then. Yeah, it w I watched it again this morning just because I wanted to. And <laughs> it was a lot funnier the second time. Okay, so it's getting a little better then. Yeah. Because I know you were on the fence about the writing last week. Well, I just felt that it didn't quite go as far as we would have expected under Dan Harmon. We would have expected a little bit more in the Inception-like story of last yes. week. And so I just felt it was great. Don't get me wrong. I love having Community back. It's just last week was not quite what I was expecting. And so like this week was – I almost was disappointed the first viewing. But after I watched it the second time, I'm like, okay, this is going to be the same show. It's going to be good. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on to our other favorite comedy, Community's Big Rival. And I like both shows. We're going to talk now about the Big Bang Theory episode, The Tangible Affection Proof. All started with the Big Bang. The couples, are, the couples are getting ready for Valentine's Day. Leonard, Penny, Howard, and Bernadette are going to dinner. Sheldon and Amy are trying to get the perfect gifts for each other. Raj and Stuart are planning a singles-only party at the comic book store. I have two favorite comedic moments from this week's Big Bang Theory. The first of which was Sheldon turning down all of Alex's great ideas for a Valentine's Day present to give Amy, and keeping the last one. Well, I hope it's with a third good option, because these first two... Bleh. Wow... Oh, this is truly remarkable. Thank you. I think I'll keep it for myself. 
Because for the second moment, I had to go with Raj give me that huge speech to inspire all the depressed signals at the comic book store, only to end up with a coffee date, which he slams in all the lonely comic book geeks' faces. Later, losers! Now, my big question with this scene, is this the long-awaited steady girlfriend for Raj, or is this going to be another something that doesn't turn out as what it's cracked up to be? Also, this isn't completely in the category of favorite comedic moment, but Amy giving Sheldon the Valentine's Day gift of watching Star Wars and eating pizza while he gave her the gift of being his emergency contact was just an incredibly sweet moment that could be classified as the best out of all the Valentine's Day episodes we got this week, at least in my book. So, Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory? My favorite comedic moment from this week's Big Bang Theory was a toss-up between Sheldon's response to what he and Amy were going to do for Valentine's Day being a conclusion that the rectum has a sense of taste. In conclusion, I believe the painful sensation felt after passing a meal of spicy chilies is proof that the rectum does possess the sense of taste. I concur, but you changed the subject. What are we doing for Valentine's Day? (laughs) And Raj's theme idea for the singles part of the comic bookstore being a little too hands in the pants. The theme will be that the greatest love a man can have is the love he has with himself. (laughs) Or maybe something a little less hand in the pants. Now, as for your question about whether this is the long-awaited steady girlfriend for Raj, I think it has a very good possibility of being so because Kate Micucci, who is the actress who played the girl, is a very good sort of up-and-coming comic actress. And I think that since she doesn't have a full-time commitment on television right now, she's wide open to be that guest spot and then potentially to be a series regular if it goes into multiple seasons. Okay. So I do believe that she's the right choice if that's the way they're going to go. Well, they need something because Penny's kind of getting annoying. Her plot line in this episode just kind of agitated me a little bit. I've been saying that all season. <laughs> and it's beginning to creep up on me. Yeah. This was one of the worst, I thought. Okay. Yeah, but we'll see. Maybe they'll fix it. Anyway, we're going to move on to a CBS show that's always going strong. I always call it the old reliable because every episode is pretty consistent. Well, let's talk about the person of interest episode, Book Solid. Reese and Finch attempt to protect Mira, a hotel maid with a long list of enemies. Meanwhile, Carter gets a job offer due to her help in the man in the suitcase. I thought that this week's person of interest case being set in a hotel was an excellent idea because it set up a lot of directions for where this episode could go. That kept us guessing. There was the possibility of a whodunit murder case, unruly guests, the danger of sexual assault, and Reese breaking up an escort ring. But ultimately, the writers settled on a surprise direction that I didn't see coming of the main Mira having evidence that allowed recent Fitch to liberate a country from a corrupt, merciless dictator. However, this episode wasn't all about saving the world, because the hotel setting also set up some really fun character moments, like Fitch thoroughly enjoying his cover as a concierge, Reese giving the opportunity to give the hotel owner a bop of the nose for pushing him around but working as a bellhop, and Fusco taking down a group of trade killers while complaining about how Fitch always sticks him at the bar. On top of all that, we got some flirting between Reese and Zoe, which actually worked a lot better this time around than the episode when they were married, because their interactions were placed sparingly throughout the episode, instead of the writers trying to ram a romance between these two characters down our throats until it gets boring. In my opinion, Zoe functions best as a tool or an asset to help Fitch and Reese complete their person of interest cases, which is what they did here, and it worked. 
So Nico, what were some of your favorite moments from this week's person of interest case? Could the hotel setting work for you as a way to keep the audience guessing in this show's classic fashion? Also, did you think Zoe was used in a better capacity? I thought the use of the hotel as the setting for this week's episode was brilliant, not only because seedy things happen in hotels, whether they are high-class hotels like this one or seedy motels, unsavoring things always seem to happen in hotels. I also like that Finch bought the hotel at the end and gave the job of running the day-to-day operations to the veteran maid and this week's person of interest because it gives the person of interest team another base of operations and a number of safe house options going forward. It also gave Zoe a place she could scout for more work because, as I said, shady things tend to happen in hotels and that's her business, getting people out of shady situations. So ultimately, this worked very well this week. I enjoyed the fight scene between Reese and the government operative. Fusco's role in this week's case was humorous as usual. And I do agree that the whole Reese and Zoe thing worked better this time than ever before. But I'm still not a real fan of them as a couple. And they weren't really a couple in this episode either. Well, they were flirting pretty hard. And at the end, Reese essentially said, do you want to spend the night with me tonight here? Oh, yeah, that's true. So, I mean, they were a couple in this episode in that they didn't work as a couple but in the end they ended up being you know yeah but it wasn't a selling point of the episode no which was that was the better part but i do like this idea of finch buying certain buildings to help them in their cause Mm -hmm. that's interesting and i'm curious if we get to see him buy more businesses as the show goes on and that they stay consistent and show how they can help people out it seems like a very video game thing to do, doesn't it? A little bit, yeah. yeah. A little bit. Where, you know, in the games, where you, if this person of interest was a video game, it would be you buying up buildings to use them as safe houses, make it easier to complete different tasks and stuff. Yep. So it's kind of cool that they threw this in here. And hey, you know, Rockstar, person of interest video game <laughs> could be a little interesting. Moving forward, this episode made an interesting maneuver as it sort of wrapped up the person of interest case early for almost every major active villain on the show right now, minus Greer, to their ugly head. So what I'm going to do with the rest of this discussion is talk about each villain's appearance, give some predictions on what trouble they're going to cause next, and then give Nico an opportunity to share his thoughts. First off, the FBI returned to this episode looking to make Carter a field agent at Agent Dotley's request. Now, this was something that made her slightly nervous as a polygraph test she had to take to get the position could have exposed a connection to recent Finch. From my standpoint, I thought Carter Bean offered this job and she was on her way towards becoming the connection with the FBI that we believe our team needs. But surprisingly, Carter fails to get the job because of her romance with Detective Beecher, who is being investigated for his connections with HR. Again, I don't know if that means the chances for Carter joining the FBI are completely over, but I do feel it's safe to say Carter's eventual trouble she will get into trying to get to the bottom of what's going on with Detective Beecher is probably the something I predicted last week that might help Carter overlook Busco's past actions. So, Nico, what's your thoughts on HR rearing its ugly head through Detective Beecher? Yeah, Dan, I could see her finding out how Beecher got tied up or locked into HR as an explanation for how Fusco also got forced into HR, and she'll understand it a little better. I still don't think she will overlook the murders until Reese clears things up between the two of them, like we talked about last week. But I do agree with you about Beecher's involvement shedding light on Fusco's situation for her. As for HR in general, I'm hoping that this storyline gets wrapped up this season as it's my least favorite story arc of the entire show. 
I'm just not sucked into it as much as I am the Elias, Root, Greer, and the MI6 guys' storylines. So the sooner this HR business gets resolved, the better in my book, because it's just not doing it for me. I feel like it's a season two thing. They're going to end it at the end of this season. I felt like it should have been only a season one thing and shouldn't have been brought back up. (laughs) Well, I thought it was over. I honestly thought it was over. Yeah. At the end of season one, the way that finale was. And I was okay with it. Yeah, because I thought they took care of Simmons. Exactly. So I yeah, they better end it this season. Agreed. That's all I've got to say. But I would prefer the finale be the doing something with Root. We're going head to head with Root to the finale based on what we saw to this episode. I think it will be, or I hope it will be. That just seems to be building up better, in my opinion. Yep. And next up, the government operative who tried to kill Reese while he was in prison reemerged looking for blood, which led to an awesome kitchen knife fight between the operative and Reese that Nico mentioned, where our favorite man in the suit showed him the mercy his bosses would have never provided. Although what perplexes me about this operative is why the senator we keep seeing in Washington wants to know who is Reese's employer. Is he trying to acquire the machine, prove its existence, destroy it? Or is he going after Greer and thinks that Reese is working for him? So Nico, obviously you like the fight scene. So what was your thoughts about the senator's motivations? Yeah, so this Washington insider that we've seen this season is actually, they mentioned in this episode that he was the general counsel for either the State Department or more likely the general counsel for the White House. So he's not actually a senator. Okay. Just to clear that up. Thank you. Essentially, he's the president's lawyer and legal advisor. I think he wants to know about Finch because he suspects that the only way that these guys can have the kind of intel that they have on the crime in New York City is if they have access to the machine. And so maybe he's starting to suspect that the machine is somehow feeding these guys intel. This guy already knows about the machine because he was one of the original five or six, if you count Finch, who was a secret partner, that were in on the machine project. Thus, he already knows about the machine, already has access to its intel, and probably is not going after Greer other than to keep the machine out of his hands and maybe does suspect that Reese works for Greer or someone like Greer. Ultimately, I think this guy is just trying to make sure the machine stays secret and keeps helping to supply him and the U.S. with intel so that they have the power and... He doesn't want anybody else to know about the machine. They, right. you know, they've they've already tried to kill Reese and Kara for it. So I think he's just trying to keep it secret. Right. And I don't think he knows that Reese is not associated with Kara as well. Yeah, I don't I think, think there's some confusion there. Yeah, I don't think he's a hundred percent on that. Okay. Or even now, I think he thinks a hundred percent they're working together. Now, would you classify this guy as a villain? Yes. You do classify him as a villain. Yes. Because it seems like he's just doing his job for the president. No, because the president is unaware of the machine. He's doing all these things, killing people to keep the machine secret so he can stay in power rather than Uh, for any noble reason. I mean, it probably started as a noble reason, but the fact that they kept it secret, that it is 100%, you know, helping them to progress their careers, that I think it's, I think that's what qualifies him as it. As a villain. Okay. Well, if the senator is going after Greer, and we don't know if that's a possibility, there is another patty that he needs to take care of right now in his own backyard. Because that's Root, who is shockingly working as the senator's assistant. And one of two things I think could happen here. Reese and Finch save the senator from Root, earning his support as an ally, like the judge for the first season. Because that seems less likely based on what Nico just said. Or, because I think this is the more likely scenario, Root is going to kill the senator using his clearance to access the machine through the door that Finch built for the government. Again, that might not be Root's plan exactly, as this show does have a tendency to throw curveballs our way. But I think it's pretty close to being right on the money. What do you think, Nico? 
Dan, I agree that Root will probably kill this general counsel guy to gain access to his security clearance. However, where I disagree is that this guy actually has access to the machine. He may know where it is housed, but besides the machine having contact with Finch through essentially a back door, Finch designed it so that the government could not and really no one could access the machine and it would essentially be autonomous. Remember that the machine only communicates with the government by slipping the intel into already prepared intel reports. Thus, the rest of the world never knows about the machine or where the intel comes from except for these five people. So besides knowing where the machine is, he has no access to it. But since Root is a genius hacker slash cracker, that might be all she needs since if she had direct access to the actual hardware, she might be able to hack or crack her way into the source code. Also, I don't think that Reese and Finch will even get the chance to try and save this guy. And I don't think that he'd be on their side even if they did save him. I think he'd kill them just for knowing about the machine, just like he tried to have Kara and Reese killed after recovering the laptop with part of the machine code on it in China. I think he will do whatever it takes to keep it secret. Yeah, and I think Root, I think she's just trying to get to the machine through him. Yeah. And she's going to access it. I agree with that thought process just based on her genius, I guess. And really, I mean, with that, I mean, that's all I've got to say about person of interest this week as we're going to get more on Root in the next episode as I guess the senator is set to return with a brand new recurring character that may act as a love interest or Reese that might end up laying more complications on top of this show's ever-growing rogues gallery of villains. So, Nico, you got any final thoughts about this episode? Not really. I just wanted to say it's a great episode that keeps this great show getting better and better each week. And really, I can't wait to see where it goes each and every week. Yeah, me too. I'm always excited for it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it again next week. Yep. All right. So you ready to move on to the rundown section? You're watching CBS. Sci-Fi's from Mondays. FX. In USA. Characters welcome. MT. We know trauma. Yeah, let's jump into the rundown section and kick things off with Sunday night with the Family Guy episode, Valentine's Day in Quahog. Valentine's Day proves promising for the residents of Quahog because Meg hits it off with a guy she met on the internet. Stewie's time machine transports him to the 1960s where he falls for a young lady. Computer and Lois spend the day in bed. Meanwhile, Brian is visited by a bevy of old girlfriends who help him get in touch with his feminine side. This week's Family Guy was actually a fairly good episode that had some good laughs, a fairly good story, and a great opening making fun of the rom-com Valentine's Day. My favorite running gag of the entire episode was the Stewie and Lois inappropriate relationship gag. It started off in the opening with Lois coming downstairs in only a trench coat, dropping the coat, and turning on the lights, and instead of Peter being there, it was Stewie. Peter, are you ready for your Valentine's gift? No, but I'm ready for therapy. Later, it was continued with Stewie going back to the 1960s and making out with a hot toddler, only to find out that it was his mom, and he proceeded to projectile vomit. Oh my god, Stewie, what happened? None of your business what happened! Jeez, you kiss your mother with that mouth? Just a funny gag throughout. All in all, a fairly good Valentine's Day episode of Family Guy this week. Okay, and that's enough Family Guy. Let's jump into the second half of what we cover from Fox's animation domination with the Simpsons Valentine's Day episode, Love is a Many Splintered Thing.
Bart's heartstrings are pearled once again when Mary Spuckler returns to Springfield, but his failure to pay her enough attention strains their relationship. March 2 puts Homer in the doghouse. This week's Simpsons was a pretty good episode that saw the return of Zoe Deschanel as Mary Spuckler and dealt with the romance and inevitable breakup of her and Bart. The episode picks up where the season premiere left off and reunites Bart with his girlfriend Mary Spuckler, voiced by Zoe Deschanel. The 13-year-old is back from New York and living in the family shack with parents Cletus and Brandine and her millions of siblings. Mary quickly feels neglected by Bart and breaks up with him again. Then Marge kicks Homer out of the house for essentially the same thing. Father and son hang out for a while at a crummy hotel, the Brokewood Apartments, for men on the outs with their wives, where Homer is a platinum member. They all watch a British rom-com, Love Indubitably, a great parody of Love Actually, that inspires them to wear tuxedos and be nice to their wives. The best part of this irreverent homage was the fact that the Hugh Grant character was voiced by Benedict Cumberbatch here and included a great montage of British TV and film with the All the Young Dudes song playing in the background. And in the middle of it, the TARDIS randomly appeared. Great sight gag for Doctor Who fans and British TV fans alike. After throwing a party entitled A Grand Gesture, everyone is happily recoupled except for Bart because Zoe Deschanel can't be around every week. Leaving an adult Bart to reflect in a How I Met Your Mother narration style that... And that's when I learned Cupid was just a fat naked jerk with an arrow. But surely you didn't give up on love after just one setback. Love is our only defense against the abyss in this meaningless universe. Love. What is it? What does it mean? How do you spell it? No one knows. Fortunately, there is a cure. Any video game ever made. Just one of a bunch of great lines in this week's episode. Okay, now let's move on for the first time on this podcast to the mid-season premiere of one of the hottest TV properties out there that returned to its highest ratings ever. Let's talk about The Walking Dead with the ninth episode, The Suicide King. The survivors with Tyrese are trying to figure their place within the prison. Rick and company saves Daryl and Merle from Woodbury. With this being the first time we discuss the show on the podcast, I thought it would be worth taking a few minutes to talk about the show as a whole. I was a latecomer to this show because I had the stupid preconception that I needed to read the comic book before watching the show because I wanted to read the comics anyway and not be spoiled. I got about halfway through the comics and then finally decided that I could not hold off any longer on this amazing show. So over the Christmas hiatus, my dad and I sat down and watched all two and a half seasons in quick succession. The first season was mostly about surviving on the road and Rick finding his family. This first season lent my dad and I towards much speculation on how we would try to survive the zombie apocalypse ourselves. The second season lent us to revise our plans as much of the season was spent on Herschel's farm and we thought that being in a wide open space where you could see them coming from miles with multiple levels of fences was the best bet. The farm was a great place for the story but ultimately unprepared for the zombie swarm that came through and wiped them out in the season 2 finale. The first half of season three saw yet another change to dad and my theories as the prison seemed to be yet another great place to hole up against the zombies. Ultimately though, I think that the ideal zombie survival base would be a giant treehouse in the tradition of a Swiss family Robinson, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves, or Ewoks with retractable ladders, traps on the ground, and walkways between platforms in the trees. 
But getting back to the story, we also were introduced to the Woodbury Town and the governor in season three, who will be this show's first big bad, and he is a brilliant big bad. The governor is both family man and psychopath who collects the heads of the men he kills and keeps them in aquariums in his hidden office where he also kept his zombie daughter until Michonne killed her and stabbed the governor in the eye in the lead up to the midseason finale. But finally, The Walking Dead is back this week. The Walking Dead returns for the second half of season three, coming off what had been the strongest sustained period in the show's history yet. But unfortunately, it came back with all the ferocity of of a pillow fight. Ever since zombie Sophia stepped out of the barn and became plain old dead Sophia in season two, the pace of the series has been toward and the Glenn Mazzara era defined by the action now creed of kill them all and hopefully we'll still have characters left to kill off later. But this episode was a return to more of the Frank Darabont era of The Walking Dead, which lived by the psychoanalytical creed of let's talk about our feelings. The survivors had much to discuss in this episode, where the safety of home was no longer guaranteed and the deck was once again shuffled using the same old cards. Taking a breather and developing characters was an inevitability, as the series can't be expected to give us hour after hour of finding new ways to eject zombie brain matter from dummy walking corpses, But I can't help but think the Suicide King suffered from unfortunate timing. We were all jacked up for the return of the series and ready to burn off the pent-up energy with jumping jacks and zombie decapitations. But the Suicide King was a sleepy episode with some truly slow parts, especially Andrea's speech. That was terrible. I know the show was written as a 16-episode season, but surely someone knew where the big mid-season premiere would land and could have prevented the majorly promoted return from coinciding with another round of, quote, the world has changed, we can't trust strangers no more, and the constant discussion of loyalties and allegiances. Not that dialogue-heavy episodes can't work, just they're not the best for season or mid-season premieres. Rescuing Merle Dixon opened up a huge and immediate can of worms, which was interesting to see play out. Steven Yuen has gotten increasingly impressive as The Walking Dead show has continued and was great showing Glenn's anger when he and Rick had their big blow up on the road. The biggest and best development that occurred during this episode was Daryl's departure from the group. After a surprisingly easy assault on Woodbury by Rick's group, Daryl couldn't leave Merle out on his own when it came down to him or us. And now the two of them will fend for themselves in the wilderness because that's the way it always was meant to be. And because people like Merle about as much as they like getting punched in the face. It was a bit ridiculous that the group would expect Daryl to leave Merle behind given the depth of the Dixon bond, and I'm genuinely excited to see what happens with the two of them. They aren't off the show, not even close. They'll run into the group eventually, but in the meantime, I'm sure they'll splinter off in a more exciting way than Andrea did at the end of last season. And speaking of Andrea, she remains impossible to figure out. She has now seen the governor, is into having gladiator fights with zombies, had a collection of zombie heads, and and he also punishes people by having them fight to the death. And yet, when told it was her friends who were fighting with the governor, she still seemed intent on sticking around in Woodbury. I know that leaving on her own is fraught with danger, but it's difficult to not see her even seem to ponder the idea of having completely turned on the governor at this point. After all, the evidence of how screwed up and dangerous he is. Perhaps we're meant to think that she doesn't want to abandon these people. But let's face it, her big speech to rally the troops with its talk about rebuilding hearts and minds, it was lame. 
But let's get back to the good stuff and marvel at how a lot of it centered around Carol. Yes, this character has come a long way since her we have to find Sovia days and she had some really nice moments here. Carol and Carl bonding makes a lot of sense in this episode, given she lost her child and he lost his mother. And what really was nice to see was Sophia's name not even enter into their conversation. We didn't need to hear them talk about her to know it weighed upon their interaction. That being said, the fact that Sophia did come up later but in a separate conversation with Beth felt appropriate as Carol spoke not only about her dead daughter but also her abusive husband in a nice nod to both the characters and the show's past. Also, the fact that Carol was extremely hurt in the moment when she found out Daryl had left, but then managed to get herself composed and at least outwardly deal with it was good to see. And don't worry, Carol. Everyone loves Daryl. I'm sure he'll be back with the group eventually. Things ended with a standoff between Rick and the new guy Tyrese that got very interesting when Rick well, lost it. It seems his recent journey to Crazy Town with the imagined phone calls from the dead was just the tip of the iceberg as he saw a vision of Lori. The fact that Rick truly hasn't sorted out his recent mental breakdown so easily makes sense and builds upon him seeing a quick vision of Shane in the mid-season finale. And it puts the group's leader in no fit shape to lead just as the governor is plotting his revenge, which is a sufficiently tense scenario. Despite this episode's slower, more dialogue-heavy pace, it was a great return for this show, and we can expect that intense action and thrilling pace to return soon, as Woodbury and the Governor will be looking for revenge, and we'll actually get that Rick vs. the Governor showdown that was hyped in the lead-up to this week's mid-season return. Excellent show, and I can't wait to continue watching the second half of Season 3. Walking Dead is just hitting it out of the park week after week. And another show that is seems to be back on track and really amping up the quality episodes. We're going to talk about Monday night's How I Met Your Mother with the episode Bad Crazy. Ted is reluctant to break up with his crazy girlfriend, Jeanette. Meanwhile, Robin becomes attached to Marvin after finally holding him for the first time. After several weeks worth of mythology advancing episodes, How I Met Your Mother is taking a breather from the tough stuff, instead opting for episodes like last week's Ode to Robin Sparkles and Canada, which was one of the show's best episodes of the season, and some would say in years, and this week's journey through Crazyville, Population, Ted, and Jeanette. If I were a betting man, I'd wager that we've arrived at the season 8 episodes that were originally designed to slow down the story as How I Met Your Mother's writers awaited a verdict on whether or not the series would end this year. The massive information downloads we got a few episodes ago, that the mother is the bass player in Robin and Barney's wedding band and not Barney's half-sister, I'm pretty sure we got those pieces of story just in case the show had to wrap everything up by May. But now that season 9 is confirmed, the show can slow down and follow the plan for a final season 9. Following up on last week's story with Ted, Bad Crazy pulled the focus back to Jeanette, played by Abby Elliott, and Ted's unwillingness to break up with her. And it seemed like the whole gang was in agreement that it was time for the couple to go their separate ways. Or as Barney so eloquently put it, Craig, Craig, I go bye-bye for you get stab-stabbed. However, this is Ted's last horrible mistake we're talking about here, so obviously it wasn't going to be that easy, especially with Barney and Marshall using Ted's apartment as their beloved clubhouse, where they could store all their guy things like Marshall's coin-operated arcade game or Barney's Boba Fett armor and canoe. 
Truthfully, Barney and Marshall's clubhouse antics were more entertaining than Ted's lack of good judgment this week. From their casual gaming session to blatantly ignoring Ted's wishes of keeping Jeanette out of his apartment, it was actually kind of fun watching Barney and Marshall bro out for an afternoon while also helping, but not really helping, Ted with his own girlfriend problems. I particularly enjoyed their impromptu acquisition of sandwiches and Barney assuring Ted, Ah, I feel so awful. We went to get subs. We got you one, though. We didn't get you one. I guess the moral of this week's story, as Lily noted, was that Ted is kind of crazy himself these days, so maybe a crazy girlfriend is actually what he needs right now. Because she's the one. No, what? No, she's insane. But I think you are also a little insane right now. So I think you need to go be with your crazy girl for a while, and when it all goes down in flames, and I don't mean that figuratively, I expect there to be actual flames. And there were. We'll be here for you. Wu mentioned this in his voicemail, which is featured in this week's voicemail section, but this was actually a great moment with Lily, and I thought one of the best moments of the episode. About the only thing that I did not love about this episode was the whole Mike Tyson future Robin and Lily story arc about Robin and the baby, although it did have a great payoff scene when Lily just handed the baby to Robin and she took him without thinking. That was a great scene and made up for the lackluster Mike Tyson story arc. Overall, for me, this was another good episode, but I've enjoyed the past two or three before it more. But this is definitely in the top five episodes of this season so far. We'll see what Wu has to say in the voicemail section. And with that, it's about time for Andy to rejoin us for our discussion on this week's following episode that was a little different than what we'd seen previously with the episode entitled Mad Love. Maggie goes after Ryan on her own initiative, while Paul tries to undermine the growing relationship between Emma and Jacob. In flashbacks, Ryan and Claire pursue their own forbidden relationship. This episode felt completely different than the three that preceded it to me. This episode was a mixed bag of some of the strongest and also least appealing turns in the series to date. On the whole, though, it's still become increasingly addictive week after week. The killer of the week aspect of the following could begin to feel somewhat repetitive if used every week. A follower emerges to the forefront, makes a bold attack or attempts to, and is quickly dispatched, either being caught or killed. On the other hand, the followers of Cult Cell 1 themselves are becoming infinitely more interesting as the weeks progress. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad. Maggie Kester's brutal slaying of Agent Riley last week is quickly followed by the reveal that she is perhaps the most practiced psychotic of this profoundly insane bunch. As such, she is one of Carol's most beloved, or at least most valued, cult members. Her previous killing spree in Arkansas elevated Maggie to the first true serial killer in Carol's stable, or at the very least, the first who was a serial killer prior to her interaction with him. It made her an intriguing and dangerous player on this moving chessboard, and it was a bit of a loss, in my opinion, to see her rapidly removed or, you know, killed in this episode. Andy, were you disappointed by Maggie's death at the end of this week's episode? You think she should have only been maybe injured and able to escape to then reunite with the rest of Cult Cell 1? Yeah, kind of, because, like, here's the thing, they can't keep killing off or, like, capturing all the cult members, you know, we need to have some of them being recurring, because there needs to be, you know, we have to have, like, semi-antagonists on the show, other than Carol, so I was in the point that she died, but I can understand why, because, like, like, maybe they're bringing in somebody new that is going to be recurring. Maybe she was, you know, a test one for the show and so on. But I think, like, perhaps maybe some of the other villains we will see on the show might be, have, like, these two or three episode arcs and then either get killed off or captured. But I would have really liked to see 
them reunite, she reunite with CC1 and, you know, proceed and so on and whatever. But, but what are you going to do, basically? So, Yeah. Yeah, I think it would have been better if she had escaped and been able to, as I said, and you reiterated, reunite with the rest of Cult Cell 1 so that we could have a growing story arc and one that doesn't end after two straight episodes. One that, you know, comes back around and and haunts them again later, where maybe she comes after Hardy again directly, uh, directly at him this time as a revenge and completely outside of Cult Cell 1 or Carol's goals. So I think they missed an opportunity here but maybe you're right maybe there was a test run and they're going to bring another character like this in i I just really think that since she was one of the original six it would have been interesting to see her development and essentially because she was this great first serial killer of the group i think it was a even more of a missed opportunity but you know like you said say la vie you know what are we gonna do yeah Anyway, the flashbacks are working to paint a dynamic portrait of this group. Carol's gentle and compassionate response to Jacob's hesitation to kill highlighted more of the loving parent approach he has taken with some of his Carolites. His ability to guide them on the path he has designed begins to crystallize as his hold on them sort of solidifies. These sequences also serve to give Carol dimension as a character. The comparison between Carol's ability to mentor and Hardy's apparent inability, I mean, come on, poor Weston his repeated efforts to reach Hardy have been rebuffed and just not responded to at all. This once again sets these two characters as positive and negative images of one another. Although we did see Hardy call Weston Mike after he saved him, and Ashmore did a great bit of facial acting to show just a glimmer of a smirk when he did it. Mm-hmm. The group's share of murderous war stories was just as fascinating to me as it was chilling. The small exchanges between them provide stark insights into their natures. Rick sighs in understanding when Jacob mentions the weight of a dead body. Emma laughs as they move along. These are the ways in which this bunch of maniacs bond. It's one thing to say they were all lonely and lost, and another to show how desperate they each are to belong. To truly evoke the pleasure they each take in finding others who are not only capable of understanding them, but wholeheartedly approve of them. Each new reveal increases the anticipation for the next. It is in this way that the show truly begins to lure the viewer in, making us anxious to see what next week will bring. And that's why I am really getting interested in this show. It's really drawing me in. So, Andy, what was your opinion of this almost group therapy-like setting where each member told their story about their kills? I almost felt like one of them would say, hello, my name is so-and-so and I'm a murderer, you know, like an AA meeting or <laughs> group therapy. Hi, Jacob. <laughs> exactly. Was this scene more informative to their backstories or chilling for you? Both, actually, you know, because here's the thing. I love when we get explanations to villains. I'm sure you do as well, Nico. Am I right? Absolutely. So I think it's good that, you know, we have these flashbacks and we see personal uh, scenes of them and then group scenes of them, like, you know, how they were like a couple of years ago, you know, to make it logical for us as viewers. So I think it's I I liked it, but it was shilling at the same time. So, yeah, I, I, I liked it, but it was kind of creepy. But this show is creepy, so. <laughs> yeah, and you, you understand my idea of the almost group therapy or AA sort of meeting feel that this kind of had, that almost perverted form of that, right? 
Yeah, it was kind of a fun imagining, like seeing a bunch of murders saying like, hi, my name is Jacob and I'm a psychotics murderer. Hi, Jacob, or like the whole crowd, whatever. Yeah, Yeah. my mom did point out, because I jokingly mentioned this theory to her, and she said, yeah, but none of them are seeking help. And I was like, yeah, that's why it's more of like a group therapy than an AA meeting. But yeah, (laughs) so anyway. (laughs) More like a key, like a key M, like kill murders meeting, key, key MM or whatever. Yeah, and really, Cult Cell 1's Emma, Jacob, and Paul continue to provide one of the most riveting aspects of this series. The reveal that Jacob had never killed, and yet was still desperate to belong to this group, was a true surprise to me. Some very interesting doors have opened up, story-wise. The questions arise, is it possible that some are born to kill while others are not? Will Jacob be able to rise to the challenge that poor Megan Leeds presents? What will happen if he is not? The fear for Megan and desire to see her make it is matched by a curiosity, at least to me, about Jacob's ultimate choice. Perhaps that's why Carol put Jacob and Emma together in the first place. She doesn't hesitate, but he does. By the episode's conclusion, the three-way love triangle morphed into three-way love, which surprisingly felt earned. These are people who are so anxious to connect that one guesses they have few boundaries in terms of how they are able to do that. Seeing Paul and Emma bond in their violent urges further illuminated their natures and just how sick they are. While Emma emphasized that there'd be nothing sexual between her and Paul, she seems unfazed by the thought of sharing Jacob's love with Paul, acknowledging that they both love him. So Andy, were you surprised by the fact that Jacob had never killed anyone and had lied about his one kill? Do you think he will eventually be up to the challenge and kill the Megan character? And finally, were you surprised by the three-way shower scene at the end, even though there was nothing sexual going on in that scene? Well, I'm going to answer the third question first because I know this is something you and I have discussed a lot off microphone. It's, I actually felt that it was something sexual because it felt like something sexually cultish, if you know what I mean. Like, they, it was like as if they were trying to like, okay, we were going to convert you into the next stage or something. Like, we're going to make you your killer anyway. We're going to get you to this place as you want and so on. So it was, it felt, to me, it felt sexual. But, it, you know, we view it differently, I guess. I don't think he is going to kill the Megan character because I think they're going to surprise us in some different way. But it could happen. But I like to be surprised with these kinds of shows. Yeah. As I as I found it for the past couple of weeks, I was not surprised that he had never killed because remember the first, I don't know if it was the second episode, it was the third episode when we went to the flash when, he, when Emma killed her mom. You saw on his face that he was, you know, he didn't like smile like a, you know, like a nut job. He was terrified. And seeing this flashback when he was talking to Carol made it even more clear that, you know, that he's never killed. And I think he is actually going to have an issue with killing somebody. I think it's more okay with ha- having somebody kill for him but i don't think he's gonna want to do it by himself but he got more interesting this week yeah for sure definitely i was surprised but i like your discussion and i like the idea that he's okay with other people killing and he wants to be a part of it but he still can't get past that and actually kill himself and maybe that shows something different in him and that kind of jumps back to the idea of some of those questions i was just throwing out there of whether some people are born killers or become killers or if some people just don't have it in them and that's going to be i think where they play sort of answering those questions or, or at least just throwing those questions in our face from week to week with this jacob character because i don't know if they're going to answer it and i don't know if they're going to have him 
kill the Megan character. The other option is that they maybe if this Joey character, the the son of Joe Carroll, is kept for a long period of time, like multiple years, maybe somebody, not this Megan character, because they would have had to gotten rid of her by then, but maybe somebody they capture like that will be something that they try and make Joey kill her as an initiation into the cult and when they would show he's fully brainwashed, you know, cause we were talking about that last week that they're trying to indoctrinate him into a killing mindset. So I don't know. It's, it's things that they're going to play with going forward in the next couple weeks, next couple seasons. So it's really interesting stuff. And I think this show has got some really good setup to go a lot of different places and it's good. Yeah. I agree. So is that good? You, good for this week's discussion on the following uh, yeah i don't think there's anything left to say about it it's just it keeps getting more and more terrifying but at the same time like really exciting to watch and i shouldn't feel about like this about violence but it's it's you know it's kind of intriguing <laughs> yeah it just kind of sucks you in from week to week and and that's a good thing for a tv show even though it is like you said an unusual subject matter for that to happen yeah okay well, that, I think that's our discussion for the following this week. Next, we will move on to Bones. Thanks again, Andy, for joining me on our following discussion. Now let me throw it back to you, Dan, to introduce us to this week's episode of Bones. This week's Bones was entitled The Shot in the Dark. Brennan's late workday has disastrous results when she is shot by someone at the lab, and the team's investigation reveals that the shooter has a connection to the Jeffersonian. Meanwhile, at the hospital, Brennan struggles to reconcile the illogical visions of her mother with her absolute belief in science and reasoning. This week's Bones started out kind of odd, because we were dropped into what felt like the middle of a typical episode. But this awkward opening got my attention much more compared to the scenes we normally get of a pedestrian stumbling upon a skeleton and screaming, which I've now begun to have it a fast forward because they're just so pointless. As for the true meat of the story revolving around Brennan getting shot, the visions that she had of her mother while being unconscious got a little over the top on the mysticism at some points, but it did give us some decent character development in explaining why Bones became clinical and scientific while helping her connect with Booth more through his faith. Also, the concept of the shooter using what the Squid Squad thought was an ice bullet, which was later discovered to be a blood bullet, was fascinating. Get a whoa, can somebody actually do that kind of way? It gave us a fun experimentation scene with Hodgins. Again, some of you might have thought that using a blood bullet to shoot Brennan is something advanced enough to have Palant's name written all over it. But shockingly, I think him appearing in this episode would have messed up the intended positive nature of this episode, with Brennan getting the encouragement she needed to get closer to her family. All in all, this wasn't the best outing for Bones, but unlike some of the humdinger episodes we've been getting over the past two years, the writers managed to keep me interested. But I wasn't left bored by visiting the roller derby or trying out for Dancing with the Stars. So Nico, did you have any thoughts on Bones? Yeah, you know, I thought for about 95% of this episode, it was a good episode. Yeah. I really only got really taken out of the scene when Booth slammed the guy up against the wall in the interrogation room after being warned before going in. I just felt like it was really a stupid move and having the female agent have to take over was just yeah. was unnecessary. It really was 
just pointless. So other than that, I really enjoyed this. I liked the mystery. Yeah. I liked the idea of the blood bullet, the frozen blood bullet. It was really kind of cool. I don't think anyone yeah. has in real life been successfully able to produce an ice bullet or a blood bullet like this and actually use it. But it has been posited and, and they even, I think, talk about that yeah. in the episode that that was like the holy grail of forensics is if they could actually have it been done, would it be unable to be traced by forensics? And we saw in this case, because he used blood and it was identifiable, that it was traceable through forensics. So that actually kept me interested in this show. So for once, a non polant episode was actually a pretty good episode for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that was the case, definitely. And I was glad they brought the female FBI agent back. They continued that storyline with Sweets. Yeah, I really liked the actress, Danielle Pennebaker. So, yeah. like, seeing her back on the show was a good thing. There should be more. We should see more of her, I think. Yeah, definitely now that Daisy thing is over for good, she should be back. Yeah, it keeps the show fresh as well. Mm-hmm. All right. So with that, we're going to move on to probably one of Tuesday's best shows. Yeah, we're going to jump <laughs> into Justified with the episode Foot Chase. See them Raylan discovers a severed foot. Meanwhile, Boyd and Ava target Harlan's upper class. After watching Justified's foot chase, the mystery of Drew Thompson, the bag, and Arlo's part in this cold case that Raylan's chasing is still a mystery. And it's going to be that way for some time, I'd guess. Let's say maybe three or four more episodes without much new info, and the real details coming out in episode 10 or so. That'll give Justified the time it needs for three episodes worth of learning exactly what this thing is all about. But until then, we'll have to settle for TV mystery storytelling and its slow steps from point A, the introduction of the mystery, to point B, the resolution of the mystery, by way of point C, D, E, 23, 7X, and 2 pi R. Those middle points are what make up most of TV mystery storytelling, and how they're used reflects greatly on the show's quality. Remember the killing? Great case, great acting, great cinematography, but the show had way too many red herrings. No one wants to feel like they're wasting time while watching serialized television, but false leads and misinformation written to the story to prolong the real deal is really annoying. Thankfully, Justified Central Case for Season 4 isn't too fishy, making this waiting game much more tolerable. This week, we inched closer to solving things as Raylan and Boyd put their feelers out for Drew Thompson, but they may as well be the nutjobs looking for Sasquatch and finding Bigfoot because Drew Thompson seems to be the great ghost of Harlan County, an apparition and thing of legend among Kentucky's underbelly. Everyone knows someone who might know where to find him, but that, but that only leads to more people who think they know where he might be. For about 30 minutes, we figured Josiah, the guy with the missing foot from last week, might be Drew, but alas, he's just a guy that's a foot lighter in another case of mistaken identity. About half of Harlan has been accused of being Drew in this wild turkey chase, and I almost wouldn't be surprised if the guy never existed at all the way everyone purports to know the guy who had a cousin who once saw him 20 years ago. The way things were left, Raylan has another lead in the form of the imprisoned Hunter, a bad guy from season one, and Boyd has invited himself to a swingers party for older people because old pervs must fit the profile for Drew Thompson, according to Boyd. Sounds like we won't be finding Drew next week either, and that's a little less exciting than the urgency we expected from having both Boyd and Raylan on the hunt for Drew that was created in the last episode. But a case like this in a tight community like Harlan will have both their paths intersecting again sooner or later. What this episode really had the responsibility of doing was putting other stories in motion, perhaps to tighten up the sagging middle while Raylan and Boyd continue to chase Drew's legend. 
I suspected that we'd get more arcs from Tim and Rachel going forward, and now we got one, rather jarringly though introduced in this episode, of Tim helping out an old army friend kick Oxy and pay off some debts. I love the ex-sniper Tim character, but adding this arc so suddenly feels like a conversation interrupted. It wasn't exactly a smooth introduction and might take us a while to find our bearings, but it's going to be worth it to see Tim's character have more story and do his thing even if he's not trading one-liners with Raylan, which is where I love him best. Meanwhile, Colton is already unraveling like a mummy on a tilt-a-whirl. His drug habit is well beyond being a hobby, and his inability to put away Ellie Mae has him beating hookers in the search for her. Specifically, a hooker named Terry, who also happens to be sweet on Johnny Crowder. Under order from Colton, Terry told Johnny that the bruise that Colton gave her on her face came from one of her regular Johns, and Johnny and Colton paid that guy a visit and rearranged his face. It wasn't easy to watch given that Colton has entirely lost control of this situation, and credit to the actor Ron Eldard for making me feel honestly afraid for everyone in Colton's path. The man is hollowed out and unpredictable, and much more dangerous than a calculated threat like Boyd is. And how about that Shelby? Just as I thought, he and Raylan are pairing up to find Drew, and he's going to need Raylan's help to fend off Boyd because Boyd isn't too pleased that Shelby is sticking up for himself. Shelby still has Ellie Mae in his back pocket, though neither Boyd or Raylan know that at the moment, so he's going to end up being a very strong ally for Raylan and a real pain in the ass for Boyd. Plus, as a huge Supernatural fan, I love seeing Jim Beaver on another one of my favorite shows. There's so much Bobby and Shelby that I can't help but smile every time he's on screen. As usual with this show, there was some great dialogue this week. Two of my favorite lines were from Raylan. Yay hi, braces. Hit puberty about six months ago. And no, I'm sure you and Rapes with a Smile here were just talking. Overall, another good episode that maybe was a little disorganized, but ultimately will make much more sense when the season is over. My dad couldn't help but comment, I never can tell where this show is going at the end of this episode. But I see that's a good thing. Keeps us on our toes and never gets dull. Another great episode of Justified. Looking forward to next week. So, yes, Dan, sir. you want to tell us what we're going to do next? Yes, we're going to move on to talking about an episode that surprisingly was totally focused on island flashbacks, which I think was something a lot of people wanted to see. So let's talk now about the Arrow episode, The Odyssey. Diggle finds himself working with an unlikely ally when Felicity brings a wounded Oliver to the warehouse. As Oliver's life hangs in the balance, he remembers his time on the island when he tried to escape with a new ally, Slade Wilson. Alright guys, welcome to the new format for the Arrow Rundown section on ATA. The first queen we're going to talk about is that this episode was the most island-focused episodes for the show so far. So guys, tell me what you guys thought about this aspect of the episode. Well, I really like the Slade Wilson character. I think the actor they got to play him was great. Can't think of his name off the top of my head. Manu Bennett. Manu Bennett, thank you. It was really, really great. I really liked him. The two Deathstroke thing kind of left me on the fence. But I do remember that Wintergreen guy that they mentioned having some sort of back relationship with Slade Wilson. So, I don't know. That's, I'm hoping Logwell Hunters will clear that all up for us this week when Michael and Wu put on their yeah. show. Can they explain all that? But uh, Slade was really good because interaction with Oliver as a mentor was really good. It was weird seeing him as a bad guy. I mean, he's a good guy. Not the bad guy we know, but I think he's on his way towards becoming that type of bad guy. Either probably by what I think is going to be Friars capturing his son Joe that he mentions and cutting his throat out. Kind of like what happens to his son in the comics. So that's where I think it's going to happen. And then the revelation at the end, we now Faye. I thought it was going to be Cheshire with Rory Harper coming. Can I guess oh, that it's it, Shadow? Yeah, it's Shadow. It was announced a long time ago that she was going to appear first in this episode. So, but they didn't say it. they were just casting at that time. But, uh, but that, yeah, that is Shadow. We saw the dragon tattoo as well. 
down. I was trying to avoid looking at spoilers because I don't want to be surprised about everything. <laughs> yeah, I agree, Dan. I, I really liked Slade Wilson in this episode. I think the best part about it was, like I said last week, and you even commented that this week was going to be this way. I really was up for almost an entire episode on the island and seeing much more of the island Oliver to see how he became the Green Arrow, or at least became the first vestige of the Green Arrow. I really liked seeing that. I don't know much about the Shadow character or Shadow character, so I was, you know, it wasn't a big thing for me. But seeing Yao Fei and the effect it had on him and why he had turned against Oliver, essentially, or it looked like he had turned against Oliver, was understandable, at least now. We could see why it happened. And I think... Dan, you're right that it makes a lot of sense that Slade Wilson would also turn to an evil guy if Friars ends up doing what you suggested and and either ripping his son's throat out or possibly doing something to his son. We don't know if it's going to follow the, the way the comic books followed exactly. They've made changes. They've done things. They're trying to go more realistic and keep it more in the realistic sense in this show. So I think they're going to do something. But I think we could see how this Slade Wilson becomes the, the true death stroke that we're going to see later in the series. And ultimately, we know that Slade Wilson and Oliver Queen have a very tumultuous relationship and they're essentially enemies in the comic books so we're gonna we're gonna see that i think eventually but they're starting out as very close allies here or at least as close as anyone on the island can be so i think it's going to be very interesting steps going forward or a very interesting story going forward through the next couple seasons yeah, I like I said, uh, I, I like that. I think I I love Manu Bennett as Slade Wilson. First of all, he, ladies, he is hot. Two, he's much more better than that old guy on Smallville. And third, I love what they're doing with this Deathstroke, like uh, this kind of Deathstroke story. And I'm glad that they kind of fixed this whole two Deathstroke scenario, it, which are, with a really nice comic touch with Wintergreen and so on. Yeah. And I would recommend all of you to read this week's digital chapter to get some, because this has a lot to do with this week's episode. And the shadow thing, like, you know, when I read spoilers, I knew she was coming, but I, I they, they didn't say who she, who was going to play her. So I was like sitting there for the entire episode, like, is she there? Is she there? She's going to be there. Oh, she, here she is. Yes, there she is. And um, so I'm glad, I'm looking forward to seeing what she will do, because she's a really imperative character to Green Arrow in the comics, and especially in the Longbow Hunters. I love seeing more of Stephen Amell's Island Oliver. I think this is the best one he's done so far. So I think we need more episodes like these. I, I think it's good for the show. And the next thing we should talk about is the episode where Felicity Moe was finally brought in to Team Arrow. So what did you guys think of Miss Moe's entrance to this beloved team? It was much more abrupt than I thought it would be, because one thing, I thought she was going to join the team with Oliver saving her instead of the other way around. So that was a nice twist. And I liked how she acted almost as a conscience to Diggle, because the way that Diggle acts as a conscience to Oliver. I thought that was really good, and I really liked how she kind of questioned why Diggle was okay with this, especially in mm -hmm. terms of collateral damage. Because I yeah. really liked that story he told about Kandahar and all that stuff. And even though Felicity says she's not fully a part of the team, mm. I see the, her being the one that works out the differences between Diggle and Oliver um, regarding Oliver's mother and how she's involved. And really, they're both right in their arguments. Because yes, Oliver's mom is not doing good things. She's doing criminal things. But Oliver's right in the sense that she is doing it to protect her family. I really do believe that. And I really believe she loves her family because she's 
going about protecting them in the wrong way, I think. But I think it's the only way she can protect them because obviously she can't fight like a vigilante like Oliver is. Oh, can she? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think she's trained like the Dark Archer is trained. Right. I agree. (laughs) But yeah, I agree. I like I actually really liked the way Felicity Smoke was brought in. I think it was time and I didn't feel it was too abrupt, Dan, only because it was getting ridiculous. The the stories and they even they even pointed (laughs) that out in this. And it was funny that they called themselves out. They said those cover stories were getting pretty lame and you guys need to work on that. And so like that was the reason why I felt like it needed to happen now. And so this was a great opportunity for it to happen because we saw him get shot. We needed the shooting so that we could spend the most of the contemplation time or while he's recovering or while he was almost dying, remembering how he got to this point on the island. So like this was a great episode to bring her in because all those things needed to happen. But how do you bring it all together in a single episode? Well, this is a great way to do it because he needs somebody he already kind of trusts her because she's helped him in the past but she didn't necessarily know it but at the same time he kind of knew she knew it knew more than she was letting on because he realized his cover stories were bogus yeah so i think he realized he could trust her especially after she came to him with the notebook so i think this was actually well established and well developed so that it wasn't that jarring for me and whether or not she says she's only going to be around until they find Hmm. walter i don't think so i think she's going to get hooked I think she's going to realize they're doing really good work. She's going to be in there and working with them and they're going to do something really good and save a bunch of people's lives. And she's going to realize that not only finding Walter and saving a man who was nice to her and someone she respects, she's going to realize that these two men that she's now working with are those same kind of men like Walter and someone that she can respect and what they're doing is good work. And yes, she will always have an issue with Green Arrow taking lives, but I think she will buy into the greater good and the greater work that he is doing by cleaning the city and fighting the people on this list. And so that's why I think she's going to stay committed to that. I'm gone as soon as we find Walter, but when they find Walter, they're going to be like, all right, well, goodbye. I guess you have to leave. And she's like, well, maybe I'll stick around for one more mission. Maybe I'll stick around for another thing. Oh, we have to get the dark archer. I'm going to have to help you guys with that. And I think she'll ultimately be a permanent member. Yeah. I just going to say real quick. I just hope it's not Walter's death that makes her stay. Because I like Walter, too. I hope they save him. Yeah, that'd be nice. Who who said he's going to die? Listen to this guy. He's talking about death as if he's a parent. No, Dan, yeah. no more, no more. I, I, I agree mostly with Nico. Like, I don't think this this was the perfect way. I, I'm glad that he didn't have to save her. That she could be like a badass and just save him because, well, he was shot. I, I think, she, yeah, she's definitely gonna stay, stick around. She's gonna basically, she's basically the oracle for this show. <clears throat> Birds of Prey, please. <clears throat> Sorry. So, I'm, I, they, they did it well. They used this story as a plot device to do with the whole island thing. But at the same time, we got to more, find out more about Felicity and so on. So, great episode. But that's. All we have to say about this week's episode of Arrow uh, in the rundown section, make sure to listen to our spin-off podcast, Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is hosted by the great Michael J. Petty and Wu S. Kim. All right, let's jump right from one action-packed episode of Arrow to an intense episode of my new favorite mid-season show, The Americans, with the episode Gregory. Uh, 
as Stan investigates the Jennings dead comrade Robert, Philip and Elizabeth are shocked to discover he had a wife they were unaware of. The Americans quickly amped up the tension and stakes both emotionally and physically in this third episode, which included the introduction of two important new characters. The inclusion of Gregory, played by Derek Luke, was certainly a surprise given that Elizabeth and Philip's cover is so crucial. But it turned out that Elizabeth had long ago turned this American to their cause, making him a loyal ally and her lover. Given how much danger the Jennings are in from anyone knowing their secret, I would hope we don't go to this well too many times and that we don't continually meet others they've let in on their secret. But Gregory on his own works both because he was fully recruited to help them and because of what his presence meant to the couple at the core of this story. As much as Elizabeth was upset to learn Gregory told Philip the extent of their relationship, no one involved acted too shocked. And how could they? Elizabeth and Philip weren't in love when they were told to marry one another. And Elizabeth, noting that she was a 17-year-old KGB recruit who'd never dated and then was put into an arranged relationship with no end in sight, did say a lot about how I should seek someone else when given the chance. Especially given how young she'd been when it began, it was easy to see how Gregory would have felt real to Elizabeth in a way the marriage with Philip had not. On the other hand, she did point out that now, 15 years later, she and Philip were finding a genuine passion in their marriage that he himself admitted had never existed before. On the surface, this is a rather insane situation, yet the writing and acting continue to make it work and allow us to fully invest in this domestic spy drama. Man, it's complicated being a deep cover KGB agent, isn't it? The other major new addition this week was the awesome Margot Martindale, returning to FX after winning a well-deserved Emmy for her role as Mags on Justified. So far, only referred to as Granny, she quickly brought the same no-nonsense, not-to-be-trifled-with attitude she conveyed so amazingly well on Justified. The revelation at the end that she had had poor Joyce, a complete innocent in all of this, killed, rather than live up to any promise to give her a new life, says all we need to know about her and how ruthless she can be. Of course, it's worth noting that Gregory and Elizabeth both consider killing Joyce earlier as well, underlining that, to its credit, this is not a show about people making easy-to-digest decisions. In the midst of this, seeing Gregory's men at work and how they helped distracted the FBI and get Joyce away was a great sequence. Very funny, clever, and a nice reversal on a spy story scene, since here it was the actual spies who got outwitted. Philip's quick moves taking out those two men who dared to keep getting too close was also quite cool, even as the wound he took to the stomach was a reminder that the Jennings are trained and dangerous, but not invulnerable. All of which is to say that the Americans creators are doing a great job of building this world and creating something extremely captivating. And luckily, after the DVR numbers came in last week, the numbers jumped 58% to 1.5 million more than the premiere had, giving this show a very solid first and second episode, if not entirely in the live viewing numbers. So really, it seems, even though I was worried about it last week, it ended up having good numbers. And hopefully this week was the same. Okay, with our discussion on the Americans finished, I think it's about time we move into Thursday night. We'll allow Wu and Andy to take over as they talk about this week's episode of Glee. Episode I Do, Willa and Emma's wedding is finally here and lands in the day of romance and love, Valentine's Day. Former current members of the New Direction reunite in Limelight to celebrate. Okay, first of all, let's get through some some minor things and get it. Before we get into the bigger things, Kurt and Blaine, I loved how scandalous they were in this episode. I also like how Blaine really helps to get back together, but really, Kurt's 
a little less a little less ready to get back together just because he's starting a new chapter in his life. I just love how like they were able just to have fun. Same thing with Artie and his new love interest. I thought that was really sweet and I really hope that we see more of that just because me being an orchard, I love that story. I can really connect emotionally to that story. And that's the same thing I feel about Quinn and Santana just because we have had love relationships on the show. We've had tons based on romance. I just love that these two women are looking at each other like, okay, we get along really well, we're attractive, let's just have fun, let's keep it simple. What did you think about these smaller stories? And then we'll get into the bigger stories, Andy. Yes, uh, first of all, Kurt and Blaine messing around in the car before the wedding, hilarious. That is epic for me because I love Clayne. Quintana, I can see that being an endgame for the show. I'm, it, I actually like it more than I like with, with Britanna. Starshippers, that's how, that's how I like it. And I really hope that Ali Stroger, who played Betty, the love interest for Artie will be be back for more episodes because she was one of the great runner-up contenders in the second season of the Glee Project and she's a, I think she, she would be a really good addition to the show so yeah that's what I think about those three parts okay let's get into the biggest part of this episode. I do not blame Emma at all for walking out on the wedding. I blame more um, Will Schuster. Because don't get me wrong, I love Will Schuster. But in retrospect, and they put hints in this episode or in the past few episodes about Emma's condition, her emotional condition. He should have broken up with Emma, he being Will, in the breakup episode. He should have broken up with Emma Queen. Just because, like, Ort insisted that Emma go with him when they when he went to D.C. Because, really, Will knows Emma better than anybody. He knows mm-hmm. her emotional state or has known her about her emotional state. He should have known that she couldn't handle this all by herself. And here's my crackpot theory before we get into your thoughts about this whole storyline. I can see now that Jim Amaze has moved from main cast to recurring, after everything we've seen with Emma's emotional emotional state and we really and not to get into a whole like obsessive compulsive discussion here i can really see emma dying because she just can't take it anymore not that i want to see it not that i'm saying it's will gonna happen but after everything you've seen especially in this episode that seems a lot more likely what do you think andy I can agree with Wu with Wu's theory because she has been le- in lesser episodes this season and she like Will hasn't had much to do in season four and because it is also I'm not saying it's realistic it, it's a bit realistic though that people with these kinds of you know stress is one factor that people are take their own lives for so I can see that happening I was actually expecting that I I didn't see I I was not expecting to see the whole Finn kisses Emma thing I was just expecting to see Will and Emma getting married and then by the end of the season they would leave the show because they are pretty much done as characters and, Emma and, I love Emma and now, I love oh sorry sorry to cut you off I wanted to add speaking of Finn and Finn and Miss Pillsbury that that seems so small now by comparison because really her walking out had nothing to do with that at all had nothing to do mm-hmm. with that like like Finn and Will may think of that as a more of a reason but looking at it from her point of view that means nothing to her because look back when Finn kissed her she did not kiss back at all she did not embrace that at all like Finn is not attracted to Miss Pillsbury like that was just like a knee-jerk reaction but I need to say this one more time why would you move Gemma Mae to recurring cast if you weren't gonna kill her off very good point um just to finish my thought about it is um because I love the the father and son relationship that Will and Finn has had since 
the first season. And I don't want to see this relationship get damaged because he accidentally kissed his fiance in, as a sign of he wanted to calm her down and he didn't know what how to deal with that situation so I just hope that the, the writers and the showrunners of the show will fix this in a good believable way but uh, I think we should move on to the next discussion point yes Jake Marley and Ryder I like Jake and Marley together but I also can see Marley and Ryder together and here's the thing with Jake and Marley in the hotel room I would be more on Ryder and Marley's side if Jake didn't react the way he did. Because quite honestly, when he wanted to sleep with her, it wasn't like a kind of just like a horn dog reaction. I want to have sex with a pretty girl. It's like I'm emotionally connected to this girl. I love I love this girl with all my heart. I want to consummate my relationship, not just I want to have sex with this girl. And here's the thing. I, I would be less of a Jake and Marley fan if Jake made a big deal about Marley not wanting to have sex with her. Here's the thing with J- Jake or um, Ryder and Marley, though. He really has feelings for Marley. I could see Marley going either or because no, no one's really wrong here. I know Ryder shouldn't have kissed Marley, but hey, that wasn't a thing of I want to steal this girl away just because I, you know, for the sake of stealing this girl away, like, kind of like a kitty thing. This is more, they both have really deep feelings for Marley. And I really think, we talked about this off microphone, Andy, I could see Marley going, you know, having more emotional issues because of this. Because Marley does not think of herself as attractive. She doesn't look at herself as attractive like everybody else. I could see this being like a real emotional problem for Marley. But what are your thoughts about I feel similar because... I love Ryder. I love Jay. They are basically, you know, two halves of one whole perfect man. So it's difficult to me to say, like, I want her to be with Ryder or with, with Jake. So, but I'm interested to see what this storyline will go. This is one of the relationships that has been going very well. I think that Ryder has been really cool about this whole thing. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to see how this will go on. And I, I agree with Wu. I think this is going to cause some emotional problems for, for Marley. But let's move on to the last big discussion point, which is... Rachel's pregnancy. One more thing about the Marley, Jake, and Ryder thing, though. I, I have to say this for all the fans. This is not... Quinn, Rachel, and Finn part two. It may have started like that, but it's not like that at all. But Rachel's pregnancy, I hope they don't make Rachel pregnant. I I really have no opinion about this, right or wrong, because really, we didn't see anything. They didn't show the pregnancy test. Yes, they kind of hinted at it in the in the trailer, but you know how they've tra- always tried to fool us in the past with trailers and with cliffhanger endings. See Quinn's accident in season three. Like, I really hope they don't make Rachel pregnant because honestly, it's something that it would be an interesting storyline, but I, I don't know. I have no opinion on it. Andy, you have more of an opinion on it than I do. What do you think? Yeah, I was, um, this episode was the first episode that surprised me a lot. Like, it's been a long time since they really surprised me with anything, and this was one of the biggest ones. So the thing is, I'm not against it, but I'm not sharing for it. I'm definitely though interested to see how this will turn out for this character because she is entering now a whole new territory that she's never been in before. So I think it could be interesting, but I don't really know if it's if I really want to see her being pregnant or get having a child or 
you know, doing something else that we might not like. So I'm, I'm looking, I'm looking forward to see how this will work for this character, especially. So, and for, but and, it was, and for the love of God, and for the love of God, please, let's not have an abortion storyline. No one has ever been able to do that on American TV and make it work and make it believable and have people get behind it. I mean, Grey is not a Grey is not girls from HBO. Let's let's just say that right here, just to, because I've heard the comparisons. It's not it's not that, and I don't want it to be that. Again, I have no opinion on it because again, they could fool us. Because remember, we were all thinking in season three that Clem was gonna die after getting hit by that truck. Yeah, but I think we need yeah. to wrap it up here, Wu. This was a, the yeah. best episode yeah. since they came um, back. Yes. Songs? What did you think about songs? Yeah. Well, here's the here's the thing. I want to say this before we go, and then we'll 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 see you in three weeks before we have some people to thank. Season four. It's a good season as far as stories have been. Music has been kind of three out of five. Stories have been either four out of five or five out of five. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I, I there agree are totally. people that yeah, there are people that just watch this show for the song, like like kind of like Smallville. They just want to see Clark become Superman. In this, in Glee, they only want to hear the song. Some want, some only watch for the storyline. I mean, love the show for for whatever reason. I can see both sides of that argument though. That Glee has lost it in terms of music. Stories have been good. But songs have been kind of eh. But we have to thank some people, yeah. don't we, Yeah, we, and uh, yeah, we also have to tell everyone that Glee will return on March 7th with the 15th episode, Girls and Boys on Film. And I will definitely recommend it to tune in for that one because it looks like it's going to be a big one. But if you want to talk about Glee with other Glee people, you can visit our Across the Airways forums. Go to acrosstheairways.com slash forums and go to the Glee section and talk about Glee as much as you want. And you can also visit my boss, Craig Byrne, who has a forum called Krypton Side TV. So go to keysidetv.com slash forums and go to the Glee section and tell them that we sent you. I think he will be very happy to see you there talk about some Glee. I'm looking forward to these next eight upcoming episodes when the show comes back on March 7th. I am too, to be honest with you. But again, we have a lot of questions that need answered. But we'll get to that on March 7th. See you later, guys. Bye. Bye. Thanks again, Andy and Wu, for your thoughts on Glee. Now let's move on to Elementary with the episode Details. When Detective Bell is attacked while off-duty, Sherlock finds the case isn't so obvious as it first appeared. After the suspect is found dead, Sherlock pushes Joan to learn self-defense. While much of America was having romantic evenings out to dinner and spending their Thursday night trying to have or actually having sexy time with their significant others, the rest of us were best off watching Elementary, which steered clear of conventional Valentine's Day themes to center on the two kinds of love that touch me the deepest, unconditional familial loyalty and the weird meeting of the mind vibe that characterized Sherlock and Watson. Sherlock, in a teary stream of whispers, told Watson that he was better with her, more focused, and maybe he'd eventually figure out why. While it was all in the soap opera tone that I doubt the show would have used if Watson was being played by, say, John Krasinski, I... Glad the writers cleared the air about Watson not being an official sober companion anymore and essentially had been lying to him. I'm glad they made the point that he encouraged her to move on while still admitting that he'd like her in his life. I'm happy that they are finally Watson and Sherlock, crime solvers, now 16 episodes in. But as much as I wanted to just enjoy the season's most heartfelt moment, embedded in an episode where Sherlock 
had previously thrown tennis balls at her and chased her across the house posing as a masked invader. I felt really conflicted and tried desperately to detect and therefore call out any romantic threads present in this great exchange because that must not ever happen. It feels very important to me that Watson and Sherlock in their male-female incarnations never take on a romantic angle for reasons that are hard to really articulate. But hey, that's sort of my job here, so here's what I got. It's very rare that a platonic female character appears in any kind of buddy genre TV or film. If there are two friends who stay friends all the way to the end of the show or to the end of the film, 99.9% of the time they're either both male or both female. Most of the time, if a female friend is introduced, it's insinuated that she wants some kind of romantic reward in exchange for her friendship. That or narrative romantic urges complicate the relationship until it's untenable. This has the effect of keeping female characters largely relegated to B stories, appearing as two-dimensional trophies and villains, and implying that males and females cannot have satisfying long-term platonic relationships. Details stayed just this side of making Sherlock's invitation to apprenticeship romantic, and it's my fervent hope that they can continue to develop the unique Watson and Sherlock platonically in love vibe that Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law effortlessly channel in the movies. With all that said, this week's frame job of Detective Bell was a decent mystery that twist and turned enough to keep us on our toes, suspecting a few characters before ultimately landing on the obvious choice since Paulo Garces was a recognizable face for any of those who watched Defying Gravity Warehouse 13 or Harold and Kumar. Not the best episode of the season, but definitely one of the good ones. This episode's side plots and the interactions between Sherlock and Watson are easily the best parts of the episodes. If they can continue to wow us with the occasional Sherlock-worthy mystery, then the show has a great chance of a long run. Well, that's all I got for this week. Now let's move on to a new show that has me quite confused and wondering what the hell I watched Thursday night. Yeah. And that is Anthony Edwards' new series, Zero Hour, with the pilot episode entitled Strike. He must be still hallucinating from that brain tumor he had on ER or something. Yeah. With this episode, I don't know. Anyhow, Kate Galston, publisher of the Paranormal Enthusiast magazine, Modern Skeptic, is thrown into one of the biggest confusing conspiracies in human history after his wife, Layla, is abducted by White Vincent, an international terrorist. It all started with Layla found an antique clock at a Brooklyn flea market. The clock has the power to do more than just tell time. Kate, aided by his staffers, Rachel and Aaron, and FBI agent Rebecca Beck Riley, sets out to find Layla, but discovers the mission is so much more. Kate must decipher the treasure map can unlock the secrets found in the clock. It keeps what he finds out of the hands of the mysterious White Vincent. I have stared into the void. I have become one with an artsy foreign language film. I have received transmission from extraterrestrials directly into my frontal cortex. This is what happens when you watch ABC's new thriller Zero Hour, one of the most bizarre television series to debut that I've ever seen. It's a monstrosity pieced together from the Da Vinci Code author Dan Brown's notes for a lost book, the ashes of failed half-assed lost copycat shows, and some of Nick Cage's more recent action movies. Yet even after an hour of quizzle reveals, convoluted conspiracies, and freaking frozen Nazis, the confusing pilot episode Strike didn't offer a very good indication of what Zero Hour will really be about, and that's usually the greatest crime a pilot can commit. But at the same time, the confusion could also be the series' salvation. I've spent the better part of a few hours trying to anticipate where this thing is going with equal parts morbid intrigue and curious terror. 
I didn't hate it. Rather, Zero Hour was just a cluster of ideas that failed to gel into a coherent story. Early in the episode, Skeptic Magazine editor Hank Galston, played by Anthony Edwards in his triumphant return to television, made his employees recite his advice to reporters on their first day of the job. Don't start with the headline, start with the facts. And the facts about Zero Hour are as follows. Nazis, frozen Nazis, underground religious secret societies, trained assassins, possible immortal demonic babies with milky eyes, and clocks, clocks, and more clocks. Now that we have the facts, here's a head. What the hell did I just watch? People dig a little mystery, Hank, a tease, an intellectual reach-around, Aaron explained. And that appears to be the show's business philosophy, too. Strike favored flashing glimpses of its hand over making any sense, hoping that its net of weirdness, take another look at those facts I listed above, would dare viewers to return. Guess what? I guess I'm enough of a sucker to fall into that trap out of stupidity, curiosity, genuine confusion, and maybe naive hope that they'll get their act together and actually create a decent mystery, but I will be returning. I'd love to discuss the plot with you, but where do I even begin? Other than a run-of-the-mill fight between good and evil to save the world and Hank's quest to find his wife, I have no idea what this show is about. The crucial piece is whatever was under the tarp in the cathedral sewers that the Rosicrucians insisted was so important, even though they still referred to it as a, quote, thing. But that's one of the only things the pilot showed constraint on. Is it a time machine? Is it the Ark of the Covenant? Is it a giant Nazi cuckoo clock? How awesome would it be if it was actually a giant Nazi cuckoo clock and instead of little birds that tweeted out chimes on the hour, it was little Hitlers or something like that. That'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah, if it was that, I, I think I I'm going to retire. Anyway, there was also the baby with eyes of milk created in a Petri dish by Nazi scientists. Did that grow up to be the psychoterrorist who kidnapped Hank's wife? Or are there multiple creamy-eyed test tube adults swimming around? And was Hank cloned or do these new apostles respawn? Where are the other apostles? Seriously, what's going on here? I should be able to figure this out, but even I can't put my finger on it. I'll give this show the usual five-episode smell test, but I'm not sure this show will make it that far. Do No Harm was canceled after the second episode already, and this show had nearly zero ratings. Then again, it did premiere on Valentine's Day. Okay, okay, so I looked it up on TV by the numbers, and after DVRs came in, it actually adjusted up quite a bit to 6.8 million and a 1.4 demo rating, so maybe it does have a chance, but still, the live numbers were really bad. Anyway, like I said, I'll give it the five-episode smell test, and I'll keep you guys up to date. I guess we'll see about that one. Now let's move on <laughs> to the voicemail section this week. The call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. Tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about this week's how I Met Your Mother episode. Wu was a huge fan of this week's episode and loved the Ted story arc, loved the Robin arc, and really loved Lily's comments to Ted. Much like I liked that comment from Lily as well. I doubt anyone will disagree, however, that Wu enjoyed this episode much more than I did. So take it away, Wu. Hey guys, I just wanted to give my thoughts on this week's episode of How I Met Your Mother. I loved the simplistic storyline. I loved how Barney and Marshall are using Ted's apartment pretty much to, as a storage facility to keep all their cool stuff in because Lily and Robin won't let them keep such things as a popcorn machine, a cotton candy machine, a Donkey Kong Jr. machine, which I loved, and the Boba Fett armor. 
I really also loved the simplistic storyline of this episode as far as Ted is concerned. They've always kind of have mentioned this, Carter Bays and Ted. Craig Thomas and other episodes throughout the series that Ted is the reaper of the things that he sows. They say this in kind of a jokey way, but in this episode with Jeanette, I really thought they did a really good job with showing that the reason why Ted, and they did a good job of mentioning this also in the teaser, the reason why Ted always attracts the wrong woman is because A, he tries too hard, and B, he sends mixed signals, which I've been guilty of a time or two with a lot of women. Just because, as guys, we don't really, we don't dip our toe in the water when it comes to relationships a lot of the time. We lead with our heart, we lead with our soul, and not really with our mind when it comes to falling in love. And I think that's Ted's problem, like, times five. And I really love the thing from Lily. At the same time, though, her saying, you know, you're going through something right now. You've been through a tough year. The last three years have been tough, really, with the slutty pumpkin, with Zoe, with Robin, with Victoria returning and then leaving again. He's gone through a tough time. And yeah, he might be crazy right now, but we've all been in crazy relationships a time or two again. And we know as the audience it's not going to last. And I think even the characters know it's not going to last with Ted and his latest love interest so it's not really a bad thing lastly though i loved carter bays and craig thomas again who wrote the episode this week just like they did last week i loved how they referenced robin being afraid of babies again we saw this first in season three and they've always kind of hinted at it and we've seen like for the sake of jokes we've seen it for like a minute or two but in this it was an actual story in the episode i love the flash forwards I love seeing older Lily and older Robin on sitting at their window seat. And you'd think Robin would figure out also, if you keep bringing something up, Lily's going to remember it more and more. But anyway, I love the reveal of who the guest star was, which is Mike Tyson. They ruin it for you on the online site because you see a JPEG of Robin and Mike Tyson for the episode. But it really worked out well. To wrap this up, I love the ending with Marvin and Robin and, uh, and the rocking chair. And it also shows, much like Barney this season, you really see how much Robin has evolved from the career-oriented, no-fun woman that we saw in season one to a very, you know, more well-rounded person, much like Barney. I really enjoyed this episode. I wouldn't give it a 5 out of 5. I would give it more of a 4 out of 5. They're really wrapping a lot of storylines up in this series. They're really going back to what the heart of the of the series used to be. And I'm talking about Carter Bates and Craig Thomas. I can't wait to meet the mother. I cannot wait to meet the mother. To me, she has to be the most awesome chick you would ever have to meet. That's the only way I would be satisfied. She would have to be like Felicia Day times seven in terms of like awesome, beautiful, and really funny. And who knows, maybe they'll cast Felicia Day. Anyway, guys, I'll see you guys next week for the next episode of How I Met Your Mother. See across the airwaves. Listen to Longbow Hunters and listen to Retro Reviews with myself and Michael J. Petty. See you guys later. Thanks again, Wu, for your great comments. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners next week in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. Okay, thanks for the voicemail, Wu. I love your enthusiasm for How I Met Your Mother, because I'm just as enthusiastic about the show, too. So with that, you ready to move on to closing, Nico? 
I am. All right. Tell everyone what we've got coming down the pipe on next week's exciting episode. Yeah. On next week's episode, we will have reviews of our favorites Once Upon a Time, Castle, Modern Family, Supernatural, Community, Big Bang Theory, and Person of Interest. We will also round out things with another Airways Rondo section featuring our brief thoughts on The Walking Dead, How I Met Your Mother, Justified, Elementary, Everybody's Favorite, Arrow, The Following, and my new favorite, The Americans, and much more. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairwaves.com. And also on our website, you can check out our spinoff podcast, GTA Retro Reviews, which covers TV shows that were canceled and went out on their own terms. It soon will be becoming GTA Movie Reviews, where Michael and we are going to start reviewing movies. Because I think that's going to begin after Green Lantern and Young Justice wrap up. Because speaking of Green Lantern and Young Justice, you can check out our DC Nation podcast, which is one of the few places on the internet where you can find reviews on those great shows. And along with those reviews, we cover all of the imaginative content that DC Comics provides for its fans, including Smallville Season 11 comic books written by our friend of the podcast, Brian Q. Miller. Can also we cover stuff out of the New 52 as well, along with DC Animated Films. But also, you can check out ATA Longball Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is another show hosted by Michael and Wu. And they cover episodes of the hit CW series Arrow in greater details. Also, if you like, you can contact us by visiting our website again at www.acrosstheairwaves.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Also, to stay updated on our podcast releases and follow all of the news that Nico provides for our podcast during the week, you can click the like button on our website to follow us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter at Across Airwaves. There's no the there. It's just Across Airwaves. Or you can join our circle on Google+. Also, if you'd like, you could follow After Woo and leave a voicemail, which we will play on air, based on any of the shows that we cover on this podcast. Kanika, what number can you call to leave a voicemail? 773-809-3363. Also, if you'd like, you could check out our YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews and promos for upcoming TV and movie events, including the movies The Lone Ranger, G.I. Joe Retaliation, Man of Steel, Star Trek Into Darkness, and much more. Also on our YouTube channel, we have promos for upcoming events that we have going on. Got across the airwaves, including our DC Nation live show, which is coming soon. And also on our YouTube channel, we have a playlist of all the DC Nation shorts that we review on our DC Nation podcast. Also, if you don't want to go back through this podcast, listen to all the ways you can contact us. You can download our Podcast Box app, which will allow you to access our podcast on the iPad and iPhone. And you can also stay in contact with our podcast through that app as well. And for those of you on Android devices, you can download our Android app by clicking the link on the right-hand side of our page. And by downloading that app, you can access the podcast as well on those devices. Also, just so you know, the Android app was originally at Google Play, but now it has been moved to Amazon, and you can download it through the Amazon Marketplace. So once again, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Betty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Reifstein. And until our next episode, we'll catch you on the airwaves. See you, everybody. Have a great week. And I all hope you had a happy Valentine's Day or Halloween. See you, guys. And you and me, no matter how they toss the dice, it had to be the only one for me is you and you for me. So happy together. <laughs>
Lester lives, man. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.